BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. You're right. We're going up this time. But I think things are looking good, by the way. Cosmically or... Cosmically. Okay. Very, very positive vibes coming Just, your uh, way. So, because we won't get into specifics because obviously... Saturn has moved into Mercury. Okay, now we're getting into Which specifics. is casting its uh, gravy train beams... His gravy train. ...on... Uranus. And when on on what? Uranus. That's, that's what, what Brian Cox says. So yeah, I, oh, Brian Cox. Brian Cox. Original or Brian prof? Co- prof. Prof Brian Cox. Okay. Yeah. So Prof Brian Cox tweeted that he had just watched my I magnificent saw uh, Exorcist documentary. I I indeed saw that, and I think possibly as a as a result of Brian Cox's intervention, originally it was just going up for Halloween, but then it was going up for a year. And now we've been told that it shall be left on indefinitely. 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 Because what, like forever? Because Professor, yes, and well, until what I mean, about I, the apocalypse? Exactly, I'm sure it'll stop then. Because Professor Brian Cox has said that he thinks it's magnificent, and I think that's a wonderful thing. There is also a good Professor him in space. Him in, <laughs> he, he is. Did you did you see the new Ardman film? Did you see? Um, I haven't Sean seen Armageddon. No. Because there is a Brian Cox joke at the end of Farmageddon, at the very, very end, which I thought was very, very funny. But it's probably only funny if you're old enough to remember Brian Cox's sort of, you know, previous career. But it's very good. Anyway, Brian Cox tweeted this, which was also funny. He says, just watch Kermode movie's Magnificent Fear of God documentary about The Exorcist. At the end, the BBC's very perceptive iPlayer algorithm said, you just watch that. How about something similar? Politics Live. Yes. You see? So even... Can't talk about politics I, can't, I know, live. I know, but I... Mm. I I wasn't doing it. It was like the iPlayer was encouraging political discussion. I was, there's nothing political about the fear of God. Okay? Good old, no, 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 no. no not one. Demonic not, possession. Demonic possession. Could be either for the left or for yes. the right. It doesn't matter. Crazed people who make no sense. <laughs> that's right. Balanced. Balanced, that's right. On the one hand, this I believe in demonic possession. On the other hand, it's a load of old hooey. Ex- you know, exactly. You no, know. I don't think the exorcist says, on the one hand... There's demonic possession, and on the other hand, there's it's absolute hooey. I think the Exorcist clearly says there is demonic. There possession. is demonic possession. Well, that's, I mean, does what, it not? Well, did I miss something? You haven't seen it. I so haven't seen it, so I missed everything. There, there is there is always the, the the sort of the great tension was meant to be between what Blatty thought it meant and what Freakin thought it meant, and Blatty was all because Blatty's was Catholic, um, very devout Catholic, and Freakin not obviously. And Friedkin always said that he directed the movie with the intention that you could read it, that the child has a disease with no name, to which the answer is, yeah, the name is demonic possession. She's yeah. flying and her head is spinning round. And I refer you to, <laughs> if, I, if I can quote you, just because you made the movie doesn't, doesn't mean you understand it. Exactly. <laughs> Now I'm quoting you back. Which yes, is, thank you very much. That's, that's a that's a pe- peculiar echo chamber, isn't it? It's fantastic. Stand by for how are you? Okay, thank you, and very excited because Chadwick Boseman. Um, oh yeah, we're yeah. going to have a little clip of the interview in in a few moments' time at the start of the yeah. kind of the yeah, the show proper because he came in to talk about Twenty One Bridges, and he's without doubt the coolest person that I've I've interviewed is he for a massively, long time. Massively ripped. Well, to quote. Child one, he's not just he's Marvel ripped. There's a different kind of level because he's 44, and he wow. looks absolutely astonishing. And yes, he's Marvel ripped. Yeah. 
Because I mean, I just I've, I've heard the clip in which he's just he's, he's like you in your Exorcist documentary. He look he's that good. <laughs> he's that good. He's that absolutely fabulous. Well, I mean, I always thought he was great as James Brown in Get On Up, for yeah. which uh, you were we, trying to. We, we do talk about that. And oh, anyway, fine, fine, fine. But at the end of the interview, we have a man hug, which was kind of like it was one of those kind of sporty shoulder bumps thing, which makes it sound as though it was something that happened by accident. But he definitely that was the thing that he wanted. So how does it work? Well, I, I couldn't, you know, you kind of go you just, in, you go, you put your right arm in, and then your, your right arm, arm out, and then in, sh- out, in, out. Yes. And sure. then he kind of shook it all about. It was, I'm not, okay, so the, yeah, the, the right arm went up and then he wanted to, and then we, he put his right shoulder against my right shoulder and bumped it in a kind of a sporty. So, what, so, so you're not hugging? No, it's kind of like half a hug. Okay, so one arm round, and then your sh- your right shoulder bumps his right shoulder. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I just I'm, and then you do see though your partner. I just want to know so that if it ever happens to me, which I think is unlikely, I'll be ready. And did you know to do it? Did you did you no think I to no me? I was embarrassed. I so just what did you do? Did you try and shake his hand and yes, bow low? Exactly. Did you t- did you tug right. your forelock? It has uh, once you've heard the interview go out, which will be in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. There's a whole thing about what happened at the end, which is oh, okay, fine, which is quite engaging. But you do need to hear it in context. Can I just ask you? Presumably, if Chadwick Boseman shoulder bumped you, yeah. he would have knocked you to the floor. He was being very gentle with me, was and he? I was being gentle with him. Okay. You know, obviously, I didn't want to use too much of my man strength. <laughs> he has, I think, he has man strength for all of us, isn't he? <laughs> That's right. He was just treating us with respect. There was that moment when he was on the cover of Vanity Fair, wasn't it? When uh, when Black Panther was out, and there was that incredibly ripped photograph of him, and it was it was it was just like this sensation. That yeah, where he that's everyone exactly everyone was having to just sit down for a while because it was just. Anyway, so you can hear uh, Chadwick Boseman talking about Martin Scorsese in a few minutes' time because we're going to put a little bit at the start of the show, and then the whole of the interview will go on uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Fantastic. Meantime, Brendan Shanahan. Uh, says, my name is Brendan Shanahan. As he would. And I'm writing to you from Adelaide, Australia. Last Christmas... I gave you my heart. No, not that. That's next week. That's next week. (laughs) Last Christmas, my wife gave me a poster that lists an arbitrary top 100 films you should watch with an accompanying scratch-off section that reveals a small motif of the film you've watched with the idea that as you watch each film, you scratch off each section to reveal a full poster at the end. Oh, I see. Okay. As I've not seen most of the films on the list... We've been enjoying uh, classics like Halloween, Every Day to Base His Favourite Film, Shawshank Redemption, In Bruges, and Leon the Professional. While we're enjoying the listed films, watching The Goonies last weekend proved to be an issue, and my reason for writing in, about 30 minutes into the film, neither of us had been captured by the premise, liked any of the characters that much, and in general, weren't enjoying the film. So my question is, what is an acceptable period of time after a film has started for the viewer to accept defeat Mm -hmm. and switch it off slash... Leave the cinema after realising they're not enjoying the film. For the record, we both accepted that whilst we didn't like The Goonies, it was probably because we didn't watch it as children and hence have no, as Simon Reynolds would put it, nostalgia tax on the film. And we can accept other people's love and adoration for the film, even though we don't share it. Hello to Jason. You know, this is a really interesting question. It has come up before. You know, what is a reasonable length of time before saying, this isn't for me, I'm going to bail? Okay. So I. I think, and I, I know I'm taking this more seriously than I should do, but the first time I saw Zidane um, in Cannes, I left at half time because I just thought, I, this, I'm not, this isn't going anywhere for me at all. I then watched it again um, 
in all of, when it was for the week that it was coming out and realised that leaving the first time was a mistake because if you're there, if you're going to do it, you have to stay for the. But if you are, if you're just a you know a paying punter or whatever, you're just watching the film and you that. I think if by the halfway mark, it's not kicked into gear, then fine. I would I would caution against the half an hour mark because there are plenty of films which don't kick into gear mm. until until you're about halfway through. It's the equivalent in reading a novel um, of many people talk about you know the hundred page mark. Right, give it hundred pages. I mean, to be honest, most people don't give it that much. You know, if, you, no. if you're thirty pages in and you don't like it, you're going to stop. Yeah. So I think it's different if you're watching it on a screen at home and if you're in the cinema. So if yeah. you've paid twelve quid then chances are you're going to stay to the end. But also the amount... Unless you're offended. Yes. No, exactly. If you're offended, if they're, if they're cruel to a cat or something, then fine, just leave. Um, you know, if there's a sudden unexpected appearance of Julian Sands, it's fine. You can, you know, there are things that one shouldn't be asked to sit through. Um, but the amount of people I know, because I'm now toward the end of Breaking Bad, um, I'm in series five now, and, and blimey, last night's episode was a shock on television. Yeah, no, I'm, I know. I'm, 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 I mean, I know everybody knows this, but I mean, I was last night, I genuinely was shocked. Shall in I tell a good, you how it in, finishes? No. Okay. Thank you. In a good way. Um, but the amount of people I know who, who, who've seen The Wire, who said that for the <clears> first <throat> three episodes of The Wire, they really, really had to work at it because they had no idea what was going on and they couldn't understand what was being said. And when they could understand it, they didn't know what it meant. But once they got through that barrier, it then all became brilliant. And I remember, it's David Simon, isn't it? David Simon saying on The Culture Show, when, in response to a question that Lauren Laverne, Laverne asked him, um, what about the casual listener? To which his response was, the casual listener. The casual viewer. The casual viewer. You know, no, he used the... He used the no, I, no, I worked that bit out. Okay, I'm just saying. Incidentally, since what? there's a... Since we've got um, uh, a review of The Irishman on the podcast, yes. can I tell you the teams, the only Teamsters joke? And you will have to bleep this, but here we go. Okay? How many Teamsters does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know how many Teamsters does it take to change the light bulb. Five. You got a problem with that? Thank you. Well, I think I noticed uh, a budgerigar and a sparrow and a hawk in there. <laughs> Thank you. It's a good joke, though, isn't it? With a lot of aggression, though. Um, <clears throat> Ian M uh, McAfee. I think this is McPhee? No, McAfee. Uh, I'm a recent Yankee convert to the church and have been listening through the backlog. <laughs> I don't think it was a backlog. It's not, it's not how you listen. They go in your ears. It's like serious. like clutter. <laughs> Discovering your teachings on theatre going conduct along the way. Having heard a fair chunk of gripes from fellow church members about breaches of conduct from their hometown cinemas, I feel I must reach out and share the good news. There is a place for you in Tokyo. I've been living in Tokyo for two years now. I must say the behaviour of my fellow cinephiles here is impeccable. Quiet, still, calm and respectful of everyone in the theatre. I can only laud their demeanour and say to those who are tired of boorish cretins who come here to, uh, to come here to glorious Nippon, which is Japan in Japanese, for a movie-going experience like no other. In case you aren't convinced, everyone also stays all the way through the credits. Well, that's fantastic. So it sounds as though if you go to the cinema in Japan, it's like going to a BAFTA screening every time, where no one says anything or moves until the lights go up. The only shortcoming, says Ian, 
I, I realised that was a very niche comment. That was very good. Workable only for BAFTA members. <laughs> well done. The only shortcoming I face is being a native English speaker, so when I see films in English, I do pick up on some jokes a bit earlier than the local audience and have to stifle my laughter a bit so as not to disturb the other patrons. Small price to pay, so I'm not too put out. So that's interesting. So the cultural history of watching a movie, if you watch it in Japan, is complete silence, total respect, no one moves till the end of the credits. But I have okay. to say that um, I've only been to Japan once um, and I was there for a week and a half and I, I just I fell in love with it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. But one of the things I particularly enjoyed about it is, I know it sounds like it's a stereotype, but the politeness thing I really like. I really like that the ordered politeness is something that's great. And then you come back to, you know, these blessed shores and you think, oh, Really? You know, and they, I'm, honestly, they are, they just, nobody would ever cue jump or... Boorish cretins, I think. Is boorish cretins, yes. <laughs> are we allowed so, to say that? Is that okay? Apparently it's okay. Apparently it's okay. Yeah. That's, <clears throat> Simon's been on a course and that's absolutely fine. But that, I think that, 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 that sounds like a perfect and absolutely ideal environment. I think we should therefore go and do the show from... Can we do the show from Tokyo? Yeah. Yeah. Next week, apparently. So you know, he's if you, obviously joking. We when, when we did the thing, we, we went to Tokyo and then we went to Kyoto and then we went on the bullet train, and they did the thing about it. It left a minute and a half late, and they apologised. Quite right too. It's outrageous. It, astonishing. It's just like it's fine. You know, we're we're fine. You, the train's leaving. Just you know, don't. There's worry. a driver. There's a driver. I go. I'm 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 travel on one of the UK's most popular rail services. Yes. We're, we're on strike for 27 days of December. Okay, that's good. I'm not going to make any comment about that. I'm not that, asking you to. No, thank you very much. A final comment just before we uh, get into the kickoff. Uh, Mark Faison, in discussing an email about fellow Wittertainees Katie and Nathaniel's upcoming wedding, Mark referred to the test scene in Diner. Oh, yes, no, I know. I, in I, the I, film, yeah, I know. I, Eddie's fiance, Eddie Steve Gutenberg, yeah. has to pass a test about Eddie's beloved Baltimore Colts or the wedding is off. Yeah, it's not. Mark made a reference yeah. to Shreve's, Daniel's obsession. With his collection of 45s. I yes. realise no one knows what those are now. Yeah. And mistakenly said, Shrevey had given his wife the test about music. Yeah, it's completely wrong. Diner is one of my all-time favourites. I was happy to hear mention of the show. In the event Simon sees the film, I didn't want him to be confused. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And the funny thing is that almost immediately people started tweeting me saying, no, no, it's not. It's the sport thing. Which it absolutely is, and I'm uh, and I'm uh, I'm ashamed, not least because Nigel Floyd, one of my best friends my best friend, um, loves Dinah. And if he was listening on the podcast, was presumably crying with pain. However, there is a film, and I can't remember what it is, in which somebody does a version of that scene about 45s and B-sites. And can somebody let me know what it is? Because I've been racking my brains about it. And you can't Google search it because I can't think of the question that Google would understand. So if you can think of the film that I was thinking of, mm -hmm. in which it's like there... a telepathy thing we're looking for. Hmm? No, 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 it's not a telepathy thing. I'm explaining... No, telepathy. No, it's not telepathy. It is. If someone needs to think of the movie you were thinking about... No, no, the, telepathy. No, it's not telepathy. It's answering a question that I'm explaining. I can't Google it because Google isn't sentient. You need okay? one of those magic robots. No, I, what I need is for somebody listening to this to go, oh, yes, I remember the movie in which the quiz is about obscure 45s and their B-sides, and that is this movie, as opposed to Diner, which I... Yes, good. It's about it. If you could email the show, that'd be very kind. Not so much telepathy as telephony. Very good. Ring in the show. Here comes the program right now, this minute, right now. 
two hours of film conversation. You're very welcome to join in. You can watch, of course, you can watch the action. And what action it's going to be. What action it's, it's going to be. It's going to be live streamed. Uh, it is live streamed. We're currently being live streamed. Yeah, right now people are watching. Uh, it's a treat. You go to the Five Live website. You can do it from there. You can tweet us at Wittertainment. You can email mayo at bbc.co.uk. Sorry about that, Mark. Still haven't sorted that out. 85058 on the text. So many ways of getting in touch because there's going to be lots of things for people to contribute. There are. Well, because we're not going to do it. And to respond to. Yes, so we're going to say stuff. You can respond to it. And then that's the way it goes. Yeah. You're looking, you're looking particularly chipper, by the way. Can I say? Thank, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm wearing my smart. Exactly the same as, and you're wearing your exactly. What the you, same. What's the, what's the, what's the, the phrase? Um, Casual? No, 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 no. Down Friday? Scruffy? Mufty? Is it mufty? Well, that's kind of like home clothes day at school. You can just, instead of wearing <laughs> oh, I uniform. War, oh, I thought it was a war thing. I think it, it originally came in, from Mufti that. means not in uniform. I think it, came, it? it comes from India, I think. But yes, it means... Oh, is, that, is, that, is, it, is it an Indian word? I, I, I do believe so. Oh, I, sorry. I had just assumed it, it was an, an acronym for something. I think it was probably... My, here's my guess. I might be utterly wrong. Okay. But you started this. My did guess it? is that British troops who were stationed in India came yeah. back and they, they ha- they'd taken the word Mufti. This is going to be like, why I just say, I don't know? Yes, okay. because that's never stopped you in the past. Carry on with the explanation of the thing you don't know. Dress down Friday. Dress that's down what Friday. what it is. And I'm just, I'm not, in, I'm in my home clothes. Does, I'm not in uniform. Does dress down Friday actually exist? I think so. In is some it? offices where okay. you have to, you know, you have to dress stupidly Monday to Thursday. Then you can wear ordinary clothes worn by ordinary people on a Friday. When you say dress stupidly, you mean wear a suit? Suit, tie, proper shoes, high heels, whatever. <laughs> okay. Who, no one needs to. Right. Wear. Can I just say wearing a suit is not dressing stupidly? It's Arabic, Mufti. That's what I said. It's <laughs> definitely what I said. That's so Simon Mayer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know. started it. Anyway. No, no, I know, but I didn't pretend to know. I asked you a question. I said, where does it come from? And you immediately launched into an answer. What are you going to review later? I'm going to be reviewing Midway, Driven, Meeting Gorbachev, The Irishman and The Good Liar. Okay. And uh, Dame Helen Mirren. Uh, you can hear that interview, the other side of the 3.30 News and yeah. Sport. On the subject of guests. Yes. Um Chadwick Boseman is going to be on the show in a couple of weeks' time. Talking which I'm about really excited about. 21 Bridges, which is his new film. In fact, Sienna Miller mentioned it when she was on talking about American Woman because she's, yeah. she's a co-star. In which she is terrific and it's a very good film. And if you haven't had a chance to see it, um, then you please definitely do. definitely do that. Yeah. Anyway, so 21 Bridges, it, which I enjoyed very much. It's like Serpico and the French Connection and all those kind of I old, like it already. old 70s films. Yeah. Um, Cop films. Anyway, Chadwick Boseman is in it, and so we. So we. And you'll hear the full interview, obviously, in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. Uh, so there's lots to talk to him about, and then right at the very end, I thought, okay, well, we kind of out of time, but I'm going to ask him about his views on what Martin Scorsese said uh, about Marvel films because we didn't actually touch on this last no, week. And we're doing the Irishman later in the program, so it was a nice bit of synchronicity. Yes, that's right. So uh, I just mentioned the fact that Scorsese had said about Marvel films, quote, they seem to me to be closer to theme parks than they are to movies, as I've known and loved them throughout my life, and that, in the end, I don't think they're cinema. Yeah, okay? not so, cinema, yeah. So this is what I, th- so I thought. Okay, let's yeah. just see what Chadwick makes of it. Yeah. Anyway, so here's just part of what Chadwick said back. I have to respect his opinion because he's a genius at what he does. At the same time, you got to think about when he's saying it. Mm-hmm. He's saying it when he's possibly campaigning for an award. He's saying it at a time when he's making a Netflix movie. So that's how his eyes get on his film. And it's not going to be in the cinemas 
it's not going to be seen the best way. So he, he, again, is speaking to the time period. He's speaking also to his advantage. So you have to take the truth of it. You also have to say, well, for me, the statement doesn't, like, you're asking me also because, you know, I did a movie. I did the first, you know, the superhero movie that was nominated for an Oscar. I'm securing that because I know the work that we did is not the normal work that you would do for a superhero movie. What we were doing had a higher standard to it because we were asking a question, how do we make a movie that goes beyond that? How do we create real a real culture, a real world here where you're not doing a parody of Africa? How do you do that? How do you create that? And so uh, there is mystery in our in our film. The mystery that Scorsese is talking about, it's in Black Panther. And I, and I think the funny thing about it is Maybe if he saw Black Panther, he didn't get that. He didn't get that there was this sort of feeling of being unsure. There was this feeling of not knowing what was going to happen that black people felt because we never had a superhero like this before. We thought that they we we you like, you know, white people will kill us off. So it's a possibility that we could be gone. So we felt that angst. We felt that thing that you would feel from cinema when we watched it. Maybe Scorsese didn't get that when he watched it. That's cultural. Maybe it's generational. I don't know. But I'm securing what we did, you know, so his statements don't really bother me. So I would say that's half the answer. So I just thought, okay, he's probably not going to want to talk about this very much because everyone's been asking him about yeah. it. And we might get 20 seconds. Anyway, we've got about five minutes. Yeah. But five minutes of really eloquent, very, very... Yeah, really, the, whole, the whole of the interview. Brilliantly like measured. Basically, so he, first of all, he's respectful. Yes. And nods towards everything he does that Scorsese's achieved. But he either didn't see it or he didn't get it. And if he did see it, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. Yeah, I no, I, I, I honestly, that's that's the, to me, that's kind of like textbook, and there we are, the defence rests. Cultural and generational. Yeah. So what do you think? Because and you thought when? Well, I thought. I mean, I do. You know, I, 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 I tweeted. I mean, this is a lot more irrelevant coming from me, but you know, I tweeted at the time. Of course, there's cinema, it, and it, it it seemed to me to be completely. I mean, since then, Francis Ford Coppola has said far more foolish stuff. But it seemed to me that, I mean, I'm a big fan of Martin Scorsese. He's made great movies. He's also made some movies that are not so great. But for somebody in his position and at his time of life to be saying, well, those things aren't cinema, the only answer is, yeah, well, then in that case, you've never seen a teenager watching Avengers Infinity War. And, and you know, there's all this stuff recently about, well, cinema, we learned something, we got an emotional journey. Well, firstly, actually, that's not necessarily true. And both Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola come out of exploitation cinema backgrounds in which those things probably aren't true anyway. But secondly, I have seen audiences respond to Avengers Infinity War or Black Panther with as much emotional engagement, more so in some cases, than with things that we hold up as great uh, examples of cinema. It, it, they're not all great, but saying all superhero movies are one thing is foolish enough in itself. Because, I mean, even you know, within the worlds of DC or within the worlds of Marvel, there are good and there are bad. So it just sounds to me very much like your dad banging on your bedroom door yeah. going, What's this rubbish? What's this rubbish? He's not even playing that. I hear the word. Yeah, which, who is he? What is that a he or a sh-? You know, it, that's what it sounds like. And I, and, uh, and I, I, I do think it... It ill behooves filmmakers who have done 
you know, particularly who you know came up in the sixties and seventies, who who had their own battles and making movies that were not considered to be cinema. To, you know, it's just like okay, you don't like them, but they are still cinema whether you like them or not. And any and you know what, Granddad, they're not made yeah. for you. And I mean, I feel the same way. You know, I mean, heaven knows I have said enough stuff about cinema resembling theme parks and blah 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 blah, but it's still cinema. Yes, and Black Panther and is Black a great Pan- film. Black Panther is a great film, regardless of whether you, you you treat it as a superhero movie. It's a it's a really great movie with great performances and a great soundtrack. And but it's not you know Black Panther. And the only the only thing I would take exception to in in that brilliant answer is I'm not even sure that it's the true that Black Panther is. He said we, we did this on a different level to superhero. There are other superhero movies that are all you know great care and attention went into as well. I think Black Panther is the very top of the tree. You know, but it's not like that's an exception. There are many superhero movies or Marvel movies which are, have every bit as much love and affection and intelligence put into them. You can't, they are, they are not a homogenous thing. And to dismiss them all out of hand and say they are not cinema is just foolish. Uh, you can hear the full interview with Chadwick Boseman in a couple of weeks' time talking about 21 Bridges, which is produced by the the Russos. Uh, anyway, he's got lots of interesting things to say. No, I'm really looking forward to that interview. That sounds um, fantastic. Did you, was he as charismatic in the flesh? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Did, did you have a bit of a kind of wow moment? Yeah all, yeah, all of that. I mean, he was just, and he was really, really delightful. And then afterwards, we did a little shoulder bump. And uh, I think he, he enjoyed that very much. <laughs> Um, uh, before the box office top 10 it's uh, it's 3.15 by the way you know how much we love being available on BBC Sounds uh, yeah, yes I mean it's it's what we live and breathe for it is I wake up in the morning and thinking am I on BBC Sounds because I, if ha- not why not how many more ways that's right can I be on BBC Sounds well it turns out you can get other things on there apart from apart from this pardon yeah it's not just us so we came across this little mm, mm, gem It's a clip from Tom Neenan is not all men. Hi, I'm Tom Neenan and I'm not all men. As well as being the host of the number one podcast on iTunes, subcategory Social Issues UK Mail Host Under an Hour, I'm also a screenwriter. I've written over 12 features unproduced and I wrote and directed a short film described by no less than the Kermode Mayo Film Review Programme as excellent. We've got an email here from Tom Neenan. Who says, Dear Kermit and Mayo, I was so inspired by your recent review of Joker. I've actually written my own screenplay all about misunderstood men. Wow. Excellent. Good for you. Can hardly wait. There you go. Proof. Anyway, so um, so the blurb for the show says Tom Neenan is a man, but he's also one of the good guys. His podcast will examine, explore and maybe end all social injustice by explaining how you can be as good a guy as he is. What do you think? Is that going to be your kind of thing? Well, I think obviously that um, I, I just remember the thing about Chris Tookie's review of uh, what was it? Was it called Double X? The Norman Wisdom film in which he said it has to be seen to be believed. And they quoted has to be seen. Very good. Excellent. That's creative. Simon Mayer. That's creative. It's that very is. creative. Uh, okay, anyway, it's on BBC Sounds, along with a few other things. Box office top I, I'm not entirely sure I approve of this other thing. I know, but BBC apparently there are other things available. You know, I went to iPlayer. They never told us that when they... I went to iPlayer to watch my Exodus documentary. There was other stuff. 
How many times have you watched your documentary? Many on iPlayer, I bet you have. All those all those amazing figures. It's all, <laughs> it's <you>. all me. <laughs> uh, box office top 10 at 26. Britney runs a marathon. It's kind of fun up to a point. I think uh, it, it's... Ironically, it sort of runs out of steam. It wants to be a crowd pleaser, and there are there are individual moments in it that are sort of cute and charming, and it's got a good central performance. But it's it's not great, as I th- as, as I said at the time, it's not going to trouble the cinemas very much, and there it is not troubling them very much. Beth uh, says, "I would like to point out that Britney's before is depicted using a fat suit. Fat suits are insulting to fat people and often coincide with harmful stereotypes. The most obvious example being Shallow Hal." Uh, why not hire a fat actor to play a fat character? Also, Britney's weight loss journey, in inverted commas, is one which is not at all body positive. Before she loses weight, she's depicted as lazy, depressed, unsuccessful. And when she loses weight, she's magically happy, successful in her career and romantically desired. Fat people can actually be all of those things without weight loss. Yeah. May bbc.co.uk on the emails. Official Secrets is at 10. It's an interesting story. It is told in a way which I think is very, very on the nose. It has a very good central performance by Keira Knightley, but I do think the portrayal of Roger Alton is about as pantomime as a pantomime thing can be, although that word will appear later on in today's show. Will it? It will. I know where it's going you to be. You do know where it's going. Um, new at nine, sorry we missed you. Um, so this is the new Ken Loach. Uh, it's a sort of very bleak portrayal of Zero Hours Britain and uh, gig economy culture. As with all Ken Loach's stuff, it's you know it, it's very well researched. It's written by Paul Laverty. My only feeling about it is I don't think it's on a par with I, Daniel Blake. I think that when Ken Loach films are at their best, they manage to juggle the elements of uh, social realism with something which is kind of more cinematic and uh, and also a certain amount of light relief. It may be that the subject of Sorry We Missed You is just so harsh that there is no place for it. I think the performances are pretty good all the way through. But I thought it was, I thought it was good. I didn't think it was great. I thought it was good. Hugh in Norwich. Having seen Sorry I Missed You tonight, Mark's review has made me a bit cross. Sorry. Unusually, he has missed the point of the film. Okay. To say it doesn't match I, Daniel Blake's warmth, humour and narrative direction is an unnecessary comparison and put down. As Mark says, the story does have moments of warmth and Mm humour. But why should a raw and realistic story like this be memorable for its humorous grandstanding moments like the graffiti scene in I, Daniel Blake? It's like saying, Kathy come home didn't have enough laughs. I'm sorry I missed you as Loach at his absolute best. Well, I would argue that that's not the case, but I think it's perfectly fine if you know if if you got everything that you want from a movie out of it, then that's perfectly fine. Uh, Matthew Lawrence, I'm honestly not sure I could recommend. Sorry, we missed you. It's not. It's an important film tackling important issues, and I'm glad I saw it. But it was so bleak and so real. I left the cinema feeling quite upset. Unlike Mark, I completely invested in the characters and their struggles. In particular, the scene involving the van keys uh, nearly had me. Oh no, I did. Compl- you know, I did invest in it, but I think. I think as a piece of cinema, it's not some of the best cinema Loach has done. And I'll, I'll, you know, compare that, for example, to Kez, which is a film, the subject matter of which can be seen as very bleak, but actually for an awful lot of it is absolutely transcendent. And I think that it's not, it's not to do with whether something has got moments of comic grandstanding in it. It's to do with whether or not the story is told in a way which is cinematically engaging. And my point last week was that I, I don't think this is in the same way that I, Daniel Blake is. I, Daniel Blake, I think, has universal appeal. I think that uh, Sorry We Missed You doesn't, but I think it is a very realistic depiction of an absolutely horrible situation. Number eight is Zombieland Double Tap. I didn't think it was necessary. 
number seven is abominable. It kind of looks nice in certain places. There are key sort of uh, set pieces which work well, but again, it's not the most memorable animation we've seen this year by any means. Uh, number six is Sean the Sheep movie Farmageddon. But this really is, and the comparison of those two movies back to back in the charts is so beautiful. Sean the Sheep is just joyous and delightful, and that isn't in any way to, to dismiss it as light and frothy. I think being joyous and delightful is a really hard thing to achieve. I think that what Ardman have done over the years is to in their very best movies. I mean, Ardman have had some, you know, misfires when they've experimented with uh, with CG and things, but this is this is Ardman at their very best. They understand physical comedy. They understand pathos. They understand silent comedy. They understand making movies for audiences of all ages. And for me, this is like the very best that cinema has to offer. And I love it. Uh, and that's a number six. Terminate. <clears throat> Terminator Dark Fate. Well, the Terminator Dark Fate. Is it number five? I wish I liked this more than I did. I think that on paper, it looks like an interesting proposition in which the central gender flip, uh, the three central characters or three strong women is interesting. But I think the film itself is weak in the script writing department. I think that Linda Hamilton is poorly served by the screenplay. And I think that there is definitely a sense that... um, I thought you were ca- you were calling time out, but you were actually asking for a cup of tea. Correct. Thank you. Um, and I think that the film itself just proves once again that, as with Alien and Aliens, Terminator and Terminator 2 were a perfect pairing and everything afterwards is incidental. Liz, in Southern California, this movie is a girl power extravaganza. And I don't mean that the women simply fight like men, though they sometimes do. Rather, the plot centres on the heroism of three women. The it action does. It does. is as fueled by love and forgiveness, hope and redemption, even caretaking, dare, dare I say, mothering of the whole human race. Even Carl Arnold Schwarzenegger develops a feminine side. The themes of the franchise are intact and feminised. There is one overly relentless action sequence, the downfall of many an action movie, like Superman, about two-thirds of the way through, but the boys had to get in there somehow. Otherwise, the film has a consistent oscillation between character development scenes, fun scenes with Arnold, and cool metallic action. My daughter and I were expecting a bust, but we loved it. Women have perhaps internalised a male-centred genre, but transformed it. Well, I'm, I, that, that's great, and I'm really, really glad that that's how it played, because that is, that is I think, what it's, what it's aiming to do. Martin Kent in Woolwich. I really love the first two Terminator movies and I must confess to even having a bit of a soft spot for Terminator 3, despite its faults. So I was really looking forward to seeing what the makers had uh, had with this new film. And boy, what a mess. I won't go into spoilers, but that opening and what they choose to do to that character felt like the filmmakers giving us fans the finger. James Cameron went to great lengths to establish the characters of Newton Hicks from 86's Aliens, only for David Fincher to kill them off in the opening of Alien 3. Mm. Well, thanks a lot. I feel like someone who's dunked a well-deserved chocolate biscuit into an overdue cup of tea, only for the biscuit... Stay with me. ...to break off and can now see the remains of said biscuit floating in the cup in a soggy, congealed mess. Please stop. Yeah, can I just add as a sort of PS to that? The, the thing about um, Newton Hicks, I absolutely agree at the beginning of, uh, of Alien 3, although there is in the background of Alien 3 the, um, you know, the movie which we never got, the Vincent Ward movie, the Name of the Rose in Space movie, in which it is important that the Sigourney Weaver character arrives on her own. But once you've lost that then the whole thing does become, as you absolutely quite rightly say, it's like the, 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 the opening sequence goes, 
well, let's just wipe out what happened at the end of the second film, which is a real shame. As a Terminator at five, Doctor Sleep is a new entry at four. So I like much more than I expected. Um, I'm sure that the Kubrick fans will find a lot of it um, uh, irksome or uh, or even heretical, but it's very much uh, Stephen King's Doctor Sleep as opposed to, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not... I mean, The Shining was Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and this is Stephen King's Doctor Sleep. And I think that if you're a King fan, you will feel more sympathetic towards Doctor Sleep than if you are somebody who's devoted to the idea that The Shining is one of the greatest horror movies of all time. I like The Shining enough. I don't actually think it's great. I think there are things in it that are iconic. And many of those are revisited rather cheekily by Mike Flanagan in this. But I thought this was much, much better than I expected. Although this is much more in the realms of something like it, or as I said before, Twilight. And again, I say that as a positive thing. I love the Twilight films. Uh, Dave Knight, uh, I grew up with The Shining as my favourite horror film and still love it today. Can anything live up to Kubrick's masterpiece? Well, no, but Doctor Sleep is a good attempt. However, I got the feeling that it was not conceived as a direct Shining sequel, certainly not to Kubrick's version. I think you almost spot the point in the narrative where this has been remoulded to fit both the story from the book and the much-altered Shining screenplay. It feels to me that someone somewhere looked over Stephen King's shoulder and spotted the opportunity to change a character to Danny Torrance and slide the Overlook Hotel in for maximum recognition. Hey presto, Shining 2. So the bits that work best are the non-Shiningy bits where Danny... Uh, there's probably too much being given away. Anyway, Rebecca Ferguson is brill, even if her accent is all over the UK at times. <laughs> and Ewan McGregor is better than he's been in years. Um, very good. Cracking film, lots of fun, beautifully shot, but for me it should have been kept separate to truly shine. Okay. And... The splendidly named Tom Christodoulides in Newcastle upon Tyne. Regarding Mark's view that The Shining isn't scary, I would suggest that my friend Lloyd disagrees. Yeah. The first time he watched it, he was living alone in a country house. About halfway through the film, Jack Nicholson sits down at a completely empty bar. The camera then focuses on his face. He looks up and straight to camera says, Hello, Lloyd. Suffice to say, The Shining scared the jabbers out of Lloyd, as indeed it would um, anyone. Uh, also, we have we have a lobby correspondent here, here, and this is where we invite you, if you when you've seen a movie, step out into the lobby, and as long as you're not giving any spoilers to anybody, record what you think uh, on your phone, and then uh, send us the email. Here's Cat Webster in Melbourne. I'm a huge fan of the original. Went in with very high expectations. Really enjoyed it. This revisit, reawakening, reimagining is really, really great. The visual effects are fabulous. Ewan McGregor is great. But the standout for me was our main female protagonist. What a young talent she is. Go and see it. Uh, thank you, Kat. Uh, Kat Webster in Melbourne. I love the, the, I think these lo- lobby correspondence things are working out really well. And if you have something, if you're moved to, to, to tell us something once you've stepped out, you can obviously email us as normal. Yeah. You can use social media or you can just email your thoughts to mayo at bbc.co.uk. And that was also very clearly in the lobby. It was definitely. Like you could hear the lobby. That's what we like. That's very good. It, particularly. Uh, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Well, this is, you know, well rehearsed. I don't think it's that great, but we have had many emails from listeners saying, look, I thought it was a lot better better than you thought. Uh, Brian Morphy in Ottawa, Ontario. Howdy, gents. It's been festering for a few weeks, and it's a very minor point. Having seen a few interviews with Angelina Jolie regarding her current film, I noticed that she pronounces the name of her movie Maleficent rather than the efficient that you fellows continue to call it. 
how could the star of her own film be mispronouncing the title, I asked myself. So I looked up the post. No, it is Maleficent. But... To check the spelling, and it is Maleficent. Is it just a British pronunciation thing? Has the spelling on the post has been altered in the UK? I'm surprised that no one else has pointed out this blip. But here I am, a crankopus from Canada, <laughs> to set you straight. Love your, love your show. Uh, anyway, Brian in Ottawa, and it is Maleficent. No, it is. That is how it, you know, but just... But I think we do say Maleficent. Maleficent, yeah. But it should be Maleficent. Well, you know, words are pronounced differently. Uh, the etymology. Go on. What? No, no, no. It's, it's. I was just saying. You know, it's. It's. For example. Well, no, that's a different thing, isn't it? I mean, nobody says Judgment Day, but that's just a spelling difference. But no, it is definitely spelled Maleficent. Yeah. Yes, uh, and it's the same in the UK. Yeah, it is. Maleficent it is. comparative. It means harmful or evil in intent or effect. But there is an e, and from now on. We will make sure we say maleficent. But, but when you say say it like that, it's maleficent. You don't. Nobody says maleficent. It sounds like effluent. That's maleficent. Not good. Maleficent. 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 <laughs> Mistress of evil. Uh, Adam's, Adam's <laughs> family. Mistress of evil. Uh, Adam's family at two. Still have not seen it. And Joker is at number one. Astonishingly, still there. Um, so. Clearly, all the uh, you know the the, the scuttle and the uh, the controversy has not harmed it in any way whatsoever. It's been great hearing how many different responses we've had to it, but it's it has absolutely rock solidly proved its point. Become now the biggest selling R rated movie. We went past Deadpool, I think, uh, sort of a, a week or so ago. And uh, I think we're both agreed Joaquin Phoenix's performance is terrific. Uh, I think it's not entirely surprising that it was made by the same guy that made the Hangover movies. And it has provoked a huge amount of discussion. And, of course, you know the thing that Scorsese at one point was sort of peripherally attached to. This is this has kind of added another dimension to the, you know, comic book movies aren't real movies because he was peripheral. I mean, I know that the whole film has got Taxi Driver and King of Comedy running all the way through it, but there was a point when he was peripherally in you know attached to it although he said now that that's not a, that was a kind of never going to happen so, yeah sorry can i just say something which i think is important well okay? it depends okay well i'll say it and then you can it, tell me it, it, it's, it's to do with this so when we were doing the box office top 10 one of the things that was quite interesting this week is there was a number of films that i've been sort of lukewarm about in which we've had emails from listeners saying you know you, you're not fair to this film it's much better than you think it is i just want to say two things about that the first thing is it is always great to hear that somebody has enjoyed a film or got more out of a film than you as a critic did. And I'm delighted that that happens, um, particularly in the case of, you know, if you say like, well, Maleficent or, or, or Terminator Dark Fate means something which you're not getting because of who you are. And I am very conscious of the fact that, you know, I am reviewing films as a 50 year old white man. And it's true. The other thing I'd like to say is this. What it does demonstrate is that the next time somebody feels like saying, oh, well, you only like that film because it conforms to your politics or your gender. It, it's not true. You see, it is perfectly possible to like or dislike a film, even when it, even if it agrees with the things you agree with or disagrees with things. It's not down to that. So, so I'd like to say doubly thank you to those emails that said, you've got this wrong and we like this more than you did. Because not only does it prove that in the end what an audience gets from something is an intangible thing and it's always great if a film does manage to work, but it also proves that there is no truth in the idea of agenda-driven reviewing. Because if there was, this debate wouldn't be happening. Uh, Dimitri, on an email, um, I just wanted to see if anyone else was witnessing something I am on cinema trips. Go ahead. When seeing Joker for the second time, as the certificate card came up... yeah. 
two people took photos of it. Really? One kept his phone out, and early on, when Arthur is putting his makeup on, they took another photo. Now, the certificate photo is a phenomenon I've seen a few times recently. My teenage son tells me it's an Instagram thing. I realise these people are obviously not church members, but how should this heinous crime of these Insta people be uh, Insta twits? I think I'll be treated, or is it just a few people in the Birmingham area? And I should let it lie. So I have said, have you seen it before? I haven't seen. I haven't seen that before. So there is, we would love to hear from you if you have experienced this. So you go to a film and people, I mean, people taking photographs in the, once the lights go anywhere is incredibly annoying. Yeah. But is that a thing? Has anyone else seen that, that you're taking a photograph, when the certificate card comes up saying, you know, rated PG or rated yeah. 12 or whatever it is that people are taking, and are you just taking a photograph of it just to show that you've been there? I mean, what does that prove? Listen, I presume that's the case. I would think this is another example of the fact, I mean, I see most films now in preview screenings, so I'm, I'm I, you know, and also, you know, I'm an old guy, so I haven't seen this happen. Um, but it sounds to me like it is a thing. But if somebody can explain what the thing is, that will be really, really great. Okay, so if, we don't if, know. if Instagram is big in your life, maybe you could... Um, but just like to reiterate, explain. don't do it. Don't do it. No, well, obviously, it, it also bad, breaks the code. Bad and wrong. And it also breaks the rules of the cinema, that is that there is a thing at the beginning, which because if you take a photograph of the certificate, it's the same as pirating the movie. And if we had ushers, it wouldn't happen. But we don't. Thanks, multiplexes. Uh, we've got an email from a monk here, um, which is always useful. Brother James Hayes has been on. Hello, Brother James. Brother James. Long-term listener, I can be found in Brother's Belfry. I am an actual brother, a kind of urban monk. Actually, sounds quite scary. Is that like a street like pass gang? Are the urban monks? Hi. <laughs> they, I know, they're one of the gangs in The Wanderers, aren't they? That's right. I love that film. I love that film. Um, yes, I'm an urban monk, Brother James, as in Frere Jacques. Anyway, woke up today to an uplifting tweet from a Franciscan monk friend of mine. I began to read it prayerfully and solemnly, offering my day to God. It began as follows. Morning prayer. Lord, let me feel your hope rising with the dawn. Let me hear your love dancing through the bird song. Anyway, at this point, I burst out laughing. <laughs> Fortunately, I was not in the same room as my fellow brothers, who had probably presumed I was watching some silly cat video. <laughs> I now cannot get that phrase out of my head, dancing through the bird song. But the more I think about it, the more it actually seems like a valid spiritual idea. Or maybe I just need to go to confession. Anyway, love the show, Steve, and tickety-tonk, and down with all those who take life too seriously. Yours faithfully, Brother James Hayes. That's fantastic. Uh, which is really, so you know that is what we do every week. We're all dancing through, through the, the bird song. song, and some weeks are more full of bird song than others. Yeah. And and what do we do? We we dance through it. So Brother some James, weeks Mark is more chippy than other weeks. That's right. I didn't know there was a Brothers Belfry, but um, there is now. There certainly is. Thank you, thank you, Brother James. So three forty one high time. Uh, we brought you this. I spoke to Dame Helen Mirren uh, recently about her new film, The Good Liar, in which she plays a well-to-do widow Betty McLeish. And she's opposite Saria McKellen as Ray Courtney, and you can hear both of them in this clip. Oh, investing with Vincent is like winning the lottery and Royal Ascot. <laughs> Given the size of your estate, <laughs> there'd be a windfall every week. So, what would you steal? Mm? I thought you were in Spanda. Ah, oh, did you? Well, they let me out early. Oh, Stephen, why didn't you let me know you were back? You should have called. What have you got her doing? So, so he moves in here with his gammy leg, and the first time I leave you alone with him, he's got you giving him all your money. No! Here, no, 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 that's no, no, not no, what's no, going no, on here. That's jumping a few fences. Listen, Roy, do you know what? This isn't your house. Stephen, he's an intruder. Can you see that? 
You're embarrassing me in front of Mr. Halloran and Roy, who I... That's a clip from The Good Liar. I'm delighted to say we've been joined on the programme again by Dame Helen Mirren. Hello. Hello, Helen. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Simon. It's very, very nice to see you. Uh, Winchester was the last time you were on the show. Yes, very different film. Very, yes. very, very different. Different genre. And I've been sitting here <clears throat> thinking how we can talk about your movie without spoiling it for anybody. Yes. I guess we could just lie about the whole thing. We could. We? Okay, yes. <laughs> I particularly enjoy the animated sequence yes, exactly. in this movie. Yeah. Although I was surprised by the ad- the underwater. <laughs> the underwater nude swimming. <laughs> yes, I'm surprised that you agreed to do that. Yes, well, I did it in my very first film, you know, Age of Consent. Did you? It was all about underwater nude swimming, yes. So I thought it was good to reprise the same yes. theme at the end of my career. <laughs> and then the bit in space towards the end. Oh. I thought that was very inventive by the director. <laughs> Um, no, we're sorry. We're not messing. We are messing with you, so this, dear listeners. So it was. Uh, I was five minutes into the film, and I realised I had read the book and um, interviewed Nicholas Searle. Oh, interesting. A few a few years ago, so I was thinking, oh, okay, oh, it's that. Okay, I know. Fine, I know. I, oh, but even, interesting. But, but yes. even even so, the twists and the turns. It's one of those stories where almost every fact that we can talk about is a spoiler. So, so what I'm going to say is, tell us about, tell us about the film, Helen. <laughs> see where we go. Well, this is I I, th- I think this is a sort of a, a bit of a throwback to the sort of 30s, 40s noirish films. Mm. Maybe a, it has Hitchcockian overtones. Um, it's kind of almost surprising that it's it's in color, not in black and white. Um, it's a thriller, and it, it, it's about people misleading each other we it starts off with a couple who've met on the internet and um and we think at the beginning of the movie and it it would be rather a nice movie actually it's a sort of rom-com about in internet dating for older people sort of thing and i think there is a film to be made there but uh this film quickly takes different twists and turns um, and that's it's it's so difficult to talk about because obviously yes. we don't want to give the story away and and, and literally spoil it. Twists and turns, cat and mouse, um, all the way through. Okay, so you play Betty. Yes. So tell me about Betty. Well, Betty is a, a recently, fairly recently widowed woman who's got, you know, she's not immensely wealthy, but she's got a, enough money, a good, good sum of money to live on and live quite comfortably. Um, but when we meet her at the beginning of the film, you know, there's a there's an emptiness in her life, as there often is with with um, women like that. You know, they want a companion, they want someone to go out to dinner with, they want someone to go to the movies with, or the theatre, or the con- or concerts, or whatever. And, uh, and and they're looking. It's not really. They're not exactly looking for love, but they're they're looking for companionship. And that's where we find Betty at the beginning of the movie. Yes, and and everyone is thinking, don't choose Roy Courtney. Yes, yes, Roy is, uh, as we learn very quickly is, in the uh, story, is a con man. Ian McKellen. Uh, played brilliantly by Ian as the, the most uh, sort of charming but utterly appalling person, with obviously with dark secrets um, that he is concealing yes. to Betty. Dark secrets, that, that, that's mm. good. So there's a hint, and I always think if... If something is in like the first ten minutes of the movie, we can we can discuss this. And right at the very beginning, I think it's actually over the title sequence, we see Betty 
trying to find an online partner. Yes. And we see Ian McKellen Roy looking for an online partner and you're ticking boxes. And I can't remember who's smoking and who's drinking, but mm-hmm. one of you is smoking but ticks non-smoke. Yes. And I think right. you're drinking, but you tick, I don't drink. Yes. So there, so there, we know the thing's called a good liar. So, okay, oh, okay, right. So there's a game being played here. Let yes. me know if I'm going too far. No, no, not at all, not at all. Definitely a game, as, as there often is, I suspect, on these sorts of online um, dating sites. I've never actually personally been on one but um you know one one, um bitches up one's um profile somewhat Uh i'm sure (laughs) well i would if 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 i was i would sort of um i would put a nice gloss on it in some way i you know it's funny you said about the drinking and not drinking and people have been saying to me all day, how good a liar are you? How much do you lie? And, and I've been always saying very sanctimoniously, oh, I don't lie. I don't like lying. I, you know, I'm not a liar. And then as you said that, I suddenly remembered all those sort of the doctors, when you fill out the doctor's thing. Just how a many glass. drinks a glass <laughs> a know? week? Oh, you know, two units a week, I would say, I guess, you know. So um, one does gloss the truth somewhat. Um, the film obviously revolves around you and Ian and, uh, and, and your relationship. It's fantastic to see you on screen together, which you haven't done before. You have been in a, in a play. This was Strindberg's Dance of Death. Yes. And I, was, I watched an interview with, which you and Ian did for Dance of Death. Really? Yes, I'd love to like see that. 19 years ago, I think. I know. So I can't believe that's that long ago, but it is. But it seems amazing that you have, given that you did that play and got such good reviews and there seemed to be a good relationship between you then in this interview 20 years ago that you haven't been recorded. I know it's weird you know that's the way life is you know did um and that's where our, our life as actors are is and you know you see people that you haven't worked either you have worked with them like 10 or 15 20 30 years ago and you're back together and it's like those 30 years haven't gone by. You're just back to exactly how it was when you were working together. That's the way our job is as as actors. You know, um, we're all little fishes swimming around in the same pond and sometimes we bump into each other and sometimes we don't. But we are basically in the same pond and we kind of know that. So, yes, it, it is kind of surprising, but, you know, there you go. There's, yeah. there's a lot of people I haven't worked with, uh, you know, that I would have loved to have worked with. When when the camera does close-ups on Ian's face, it's amazing. I'd never really noticed before. And then I thought back to all the other films that I've seen him in and realised that he does it all the time. In a pause or in an expression or in even just a grunt. Imagine, and it's like instead of a paragraph, that's it. It's, and his face is so expressive. Yes, yes. Which is, his character Absolutely. requires him to be that because yes. you're sort of far more impassive. Yes. You think this is like a masterclass that we're watching here? Yes, of course it is. And uh, you know, any any of the takes that that uh, Ian did, or or indeed I did, uh, you know, would be have their own value. But I, I want to give credit also to our director and our editor because, and indeed the composer, because with a film like this, the if there's a masterclass to be seen, really it's a masterclass in filmmaking, because. A thriller like this, with all of its mysteries and its turns and its twists and its turns, 
it has to be constructed like a beautifully constructed watch where everything clicks into place and is dependent upon each other. And that's where you get, you know, the brilliant editing that is obviously the work of the director and the editor together. Yes, so. Bill, Bill Condon is the director. And I've spoken to, when Ian was on the show last, we, we would talk, I think that was for Mr. Holmes. So we talked to him about that. But in an interview that he did, he you have different ways of approaching a scene. And he said that Ian McKellen likes to rehearse and talk and you are spontaneous and spur of the moment. Is that would that be That's interesting. Would that be right? Yes, I would say that is right. Yes, actually. I don't like to talk about it too much. I think about it a lot, but I don't like to articulate or some sometimes I, I just like to jump in in as free a way as possible without without too many thoughts in my head. <laughs> yeah. You know, that in my job you're always I mean, Ian is an old friend, so I know him very well. But, you know, you are constantly meeting other people with different approaches from you, different rhythms of working. Some people want to get there really fast. Other people want to get there very, very slowly. So there's one thing I've learned over the um, my years as an actress is that, number one, there are no rules about the best way to do it. There is no such thing as the best way. And that everybody has their own way. And to let... Everybody do their job, their acting with their own rhythm and their own approach and, and allow them the freedom to do that and don't try and impose your own rhythm upon them. Yes. I think <clears throat> most people will feel when they, within a few minutes of the film, start thinking we can relax here because we're in the hands of experts. You know, everybody knows exactly what they're doing. You know, she mentioned Jim Carter uh, as well as Russell Tovey, yes. who, who play very important uh, roles. But my guess is that you're having a delightful time because it seems to be played with relish. Yes, I, I hope so. Without it being, you don't want to watch a movie and be thinking about how the actors are acting, if you know what I mean. You, you want to be brought imaginatively into the world and forget that it's... Ian McKellen and Russell Tovey and Jim Carter. You want to forget that and, and, and be, you know, imaginatively brought into the story. So we certainly, I have to say, had a great time when we were making it. We did. We loved the process, all of us. You know, you, you don't want to be watching a movie thinking, oh, the actors are having a very good time. No, you absolutely. Know, you want to watch a movie going, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Um, Catherine the Great is another astonishing role for you, but I just wanted, having, I think you're executive producer... Yes. If you then have a say in who directs and yeah. who writes, presumably you enjoyed that role enormously. And I just wonder whether that's going to make you... Do more. Do more, th yes, and to be more involved. Like I don't know. Well, actually, you know, I've always been, especially on Prime, Prime Suspect, or the, the later Prime Suspects, although I didn't have... You know, it wasn't up on the screen, executive producer. I certainly had the ability to say, oh, this is a great director I'd love to work with, or, you know, I love, um, I love that writer. So I, I, I was allowed that contribution, which, which is fabulous. It's not that you want control, but it, it's lovely to be a member of the, the, the team, the creative team on that level. In, in terms of Catherine, yes, I had a say. It was a very easy say because I'd worked with Philip Martin before on Prime Suspect. I'd worked with Nigel Williams before the writer on Elizabeth I. So I knew that I really appreciated their abilities and thought they were both brilliant. 
And, you know, the, the project came about because I foolishly, at the end of an re- interview like this with you, when the last question, it's always the last question, what would you like to do next? Or is there a dream role you'd love to play? I very foolishly said, well, Catherine the Great is a very interesting person. And, <laughs> and then off it went. <laughs> what would you like to do next? Yeah. Well, of the things that you've done or that you know you are doing, what do we see you in next? Dame Helen. Uh, well, the next film I'm, I'm, I'll be shooting is a film called The Duke with Jim Broadbent. I'm not a queen or an empress sure. or anything like that. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely positive. I'll be a, a, a working woman, uh, a cleaner, actually. <laughs> um, Jim, I'm playing Jim's wife, so that'll be great. He's fantastic. Yeah. I reckon you'd be a good... Boudicca, Bodicea, as it used to be. Yes, yes, a little too old now, unfortunately. No, I really don't think But in so. my day, I would have been a great Boudicca, yeah. That's, that's a good role. Helen Mirren can be seen in The Good Liar, Hitchcockian indeed. Dame Helen, always a pleasure to have you on the programme. Thank, Thank you, Simon. Uh, Helen Mirren speaking uh, to me a few days ago. A two-part review, probably, because the news will insist on being yeah. on at four o'clock. Take it away, Mark. So let's start by saying um, that uh, Helen Mirren said in that interview that credit must be given to the editor and uh, for the music. Uh, obviously, you mentioned that it's directed by Bill Condon. Uh, the editor is Virginia Katz, and the music is by Carter Burwell. Adapted from a novel, which, as you said at the beginning, by Nicholas Searle, which you've read. Um, I have. Adapted by Jeffrey Hatcher, who adapted Mr. Holmes. And, of course, Bill Condon had worked before um, with uh, Sir Ian McKellen. Helen, uh, on a couple of films. So um, Helen Mirren said in that interview that this is Hitchcockian. I think that is a very uh, a very kind word for what the film is. I should say from the beginning that I thought this was preposterous tosh of the highest order. That's not necessarily an entirely bad thing, but um, it didn't win me. In the first 15 minutes of the film, uh, that opening sequence that you talk about when they're doing the online thing and it's establishing, oh, you know, it's called The Good Liar and obviously people are filling in the online forms and telling, you know, slight uh, exaggerations or changes to their own scene. So it sets up that good lying thing. In the first 15 minutes of the film, it became absolutely apparent to me exactly where it was going because you could hear the clanking and cranging of the steam engine of plot approaching from a long ways down the track, complete with guitar and harmonica accompaniment. You know, here it comes, there's a twist coming. So that's absolutely fine. What you won't see coming is the second major plot twist. And the reason you won't see it coming is because it appears that somebody has changed the channels on the television. And I genuinely expected Tim Curry from the Rocky Horror Show to go, or should I say, Dr. Von Scott? Because there is a, there is the first and obvious twist, which the whole film is building towards. And then there is the second, I'm sorry, pardon? What? Really? And I think the problem that the film has is that uh, Helen Mirren uh, said in that interview that you sh- it shouldn't be that you are seeing actors enjoy themselves. You should be engulfed in their world, OK? I thought that her and Ian McKellen looked like they were enjoying themselves enormously, and I wish that I was enjoying it as much as they were. And I am sure that there are circumstances under which audiences will find that level of enjoyment. For me, it felt like a really weird cross between a sort of Sunday afternoon Miss Marple murder mystery and uh, a, a film which has Sir Ian McKellen dropping the the rudest of rude words three times completely out of context in a way that made me think oh now you can do that in a 15 certificate film that's that's really strange because yes i know exactly so i thought it was 
if you I mean look in a few weeks time we have knives out okay which is the ryan johnson film which basically takes the sort of the agatha the throwback you know she was talking about throwback takes that old kind of uh you know who, who what's going on story and does something really fresh really new really exciting really cinematic with it this felt to me like old-fashioned but in a not in a good way old-fashioned in a kind of you know creaky chundering, clumping, you know, clump, boom, plot point. I, I, I mean, there was a point in it, which two-thirds of the way through, when the second reveal happens, and I know, as you said yourself, you can't... And I just felt like going, oh, come on, really? And uh, so I thought it was... At least you didn't see it coming. And at least that's, I didn't, I didn't see point. it coming. I didn't see it coming. And to carry on from the theme You're of... You're from space? How, exactly. And, and the, you know, the nude underwater swimming animated sequence, frankly, would have seemed no more out of place than the second revelation, which was like, oh, come on. When she mentioned nude underwater swimming, I did think, where is this going? <laughs> uh, where, did this, where did this come from? And then, you know, obviously she explains. Yeah. Preposterous tosh. In the news, uh, there was a political reporter said that Joe Swinson was being discluded. Yes, is that a word. Well, I, I mean, I you know, asking me is like, I mean, I, I or excluded, fine. Yes, it's not. I mean, it's not. It's not a word that I'm familiar with. But then I, there's plenty of words that I'm not familiar with, like anti-disestablishmentarianism. Yes, which was once upon a time the longest word in the English language. But it turns Probably. out the actual longest word is is um, it's the it's the it's it's, it's a chemical name. It's silly, silly. It's it's one of those things. That, oh, for heaven's sake! Dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. No, not that one. Floxy hoxy, that's the one. Floxy hoxy salaminification. You're just, you're just making. No, 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 he's not. That's a thing. That's a thing. Simon just said it. Floxy hoxy. That's that my kids used to say. Bounce, 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 bounce. The wonderful thing. But the is, I'm the only one. That's what it sounds like. What's the word? It's floxy hoxy. Can say it again. Neeps and tatties. Floxy hoxy. Silipilification. Floxy hoxy silipilification. Fine. Okay, but discluded. Anyway, I, I'm going to try. Is, if that's a word, then I'm going to try and. It is a word. Use it. Anyway, we were talking about the Good Liar just before. Uh, yeah. The news and Helen Mirren and Ian McKellen, and I. I think, I can agree with most of what you said, but I just think I enjoyed yeah. it more. I mean, okay. the thing is, I because I'd read the book because we'd done it for work. Um, I sort of knew I knew where it was going, but it the moment where you where you're going clunk. Yeah. Um, I can see that it is a clunk. Yeah, but I, mean, I, but, I, I, but I enjoyed it because I'm watching Helen Mirren and Ian McKellen. That's a whole page. I'm sorry, that's brilliant. Do that again. And ladies and gentlemen, sorry. And now Simon Mayo plays Serene and McKellen. Ah. Go see the movie. It's that's true. Just, that's, that's, that's just brilliant. But the thing is, it's you when he when I say it, it just sounds like I've got wind. But when <laughs> when he does it, it's like a para whole paragraph of text. Okay, answer me this. Yes, one of the things that um, that, that Dame uh, Helen Mirren said in that interview was that you shouldn't feel like the actors were enjoying themselves. You should, I mean, you could fine, but you should feel that you're immersed in the world of the characters. I did feel at the end of every scene, I could hear somebody saying "cut." And then I'm going, that was jolly good. That was jolly good. Remember when we were at the National? 
glass I mean, of wine. I, no, but, but and there is a certain pleasure in that. And actually, I think that, that if the film finds its audience, it will be people who are going on for exactly that. They are going along to watch. Helen Mirren and uh, Sri McKellen, Dame Helen Mirren, Sarah McKellen, doing exactly that thing and never believing for one minute that they are anything other than those two very, very fine performers doing that thing. But there was never a moment that I thought that they were anything. It's interesting. Yeah, it's a very kind of nuanced and personal thing because actually when you were saying that and because we were just talking about his dark materials, in the film yes. Northern Lights, yes. Ian McKellen does the voice of the bear uh, oh yes, yeah, of I've, Eric, Eric Bjornsson, who is completely forgotten the that, fighting yeah. bear. But as, and obviously, Ian McKellen's got one of those fabulous voices. Mm. But as soon as the bear talks, everyone's going, "Where's Ian McKellen?" So instantly, you're taken out of the moment. I think because you go, "It's Gandalf." What's he being a bear for? You know. So I, you know, it's those little things. It was like we were talking last week when yeah. in Joker, when they do the thing with the, with Rock with, and Roll with, Part yeah, Two. Yeah, yeah. I'm taken out of it straight away. Yeah. And you've talked before about watching a Pixar movie, and if it's not the script isn't great, if it's not up to their usual standard, you start looking at yeah, no, the other can. things that are on screen. And exactly. it's just those little things that take you out yeah. at the moment. The, but the other thing I want to ask you is, yes. I imagine that the, the second big plot reveal, that I went, oh, for heaven's sake. I imagine that in the book, that works rather better. I think and it's... I, a, yeah. And I think in a way, because you knew the book, probably it seemed less preposterous because it must have been... I, I, is that right? I haven't read the book. Yes, I, th- I think I think you're probably right. I, uh, this was a number of years ago now, but I don't think I had that kind of, oh, this is preposterous moment. I don't think. But if it does, I think you're... I agree with you that if it finds its audience, it'll be because it's a uh, a film that gives pleasure to people who know what they're going to... Yeah, who, who want to see... Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren playing those kind of, you know, slightly battling, you know, who's outwitting who kind of thing, the thing that is set up at the very beginning. Incidentally, it is a very good beginning because that scene of them both filling in the forms tells you what you need to know about yes. the character. And then, but the fact is, Bill Condon is a very good director. It's just a very, very preposterously silly film. With extra swearing. With extra... I mean, that's the other thing. Did, was there a point that you thought, oh, come on, just... No... Just t- it's it not, wasn't necessary. It's not, it's, not, it's not necessary. It appears to be from a different film, and the and and the and the and the little the little stabby bits. You got again. It's like we weren't in that film. Why am I now in that film? Are you sure you saw the right film? I'm sure I saw the right With film. With the underwater swimming. With the underwater swimming and the animation. Yes, that was Anyway, yeah. uh, it's 12 minutes past four. What else have we got to see? So Midway, which is a retelling of the story of the Pacific Battle, previously been documented by John Ford and then, of course, dramatised uh, in the 70s in a sense-around version. This uh, stars the very likeable uh, Ed Scrine as Maverick uh, Air Race Dick Best, who chews gum, breaks the rules and generally does daredevil things. He doesn't play by the rules. He's a bit of a loose cannon, as his wife understands all too well, but sometimes the authorities don't. Wade, have you met Anne? Wade McCluskey. I fly with your husband. Hey, uh, you want a drink? I do, if you want me to dance. How long have you been married? Long enough to know my husband's talents. Why isn't he commanding a squadron? I don't make those decisions. I understand before the war when it was about politics, but now? I told you she was a firecracker. (laughs) I have to say, I often wondered what kind of woman would marry Dick Best. uh, Well, you have not disappointed. Yes, the screenplay. (laughs) No, it's... That pause 
spoke volumes. Did it? Okay, fine. I mean, I, Emma Barnett had an interview th- this week with a 12 and a half second gap between question and answer. And again, <laughs> it was. That, that gap was very, very revealing. <laughs> and the gap between the end of that clip <laughs> and you saying anything told us all we need to know. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the, the script is terrible. I mean, it's just terrible. I mean, I know that it's based on real events and, and all the rest of it. But there is a moment when somebody has to say, men like Dick Best are the reason we're going to win this war. You, you really, that th- you actually have a character saying something as rampantly cliched as that out loud in the middle of this room. So the screenplay is terrible. Um, and it's directed by uh, Roland Emmerich, who, as we know, has never been one for understatement. And there was a moment in the middle of this when I longed for the erudition and low-key wordplay of Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. Wow. Because it it really, it's like it's waving Pearl Harbor bye-bye in the rearview mirror when it comes to bombast. It's like, no, fine, you know. So we we, we start with those events and then we move to this event. And, the, you know, the story of uh, Midway is kind of famously uh, well rehearsed and we all know that obviously Roland Emmerich knows how to orchestrate an action sequence and so clearly with up to the minute special effects the dogfights are spectacular and it does put you in mind of the extraordinary danger and bravery and heroism of everyone actually involved in the battle and the film makes a kind of half-hearted attempt to be sort of to see the thing from both sides and to appreciate that actually it's not just, you know, flag-waving, straightforward stuff. But then it chucks all that out. As soon as people open their mouths and start talking, it's it's like somebody just ripped a... a like some 1940s comic book and took that and there we go, just put those. And the problem with it is that there are some very good... I like Ed Scrine, I think he's fun. I I like Woody Harrelson, I like Luke Evans, I like Aaron Eckhart. The supporting cast all seem to be playing a game of wiggy hair, which is, you know, I'll just adjust my wig and I'll experiment with some sort of facial hair and I'll just stand in the background and if this scenery wasn't digital, I would be chewing a large chunk out of it, but unfortunately most of it is... Is, is, is put in afterwards and there are you know characters who turn up and they do a lot of you know the thing you said about silence there's a lot of moments when uh, but the the thing about uh about ed scrine's character is we know who he is because he chews gum that's it chews gum doesn't none of the others chew gum no he chews gum that's his thing that's the thing that he does he chews gum okay and uh yeah there we go that's it. and uh the another character has a moustache that's his cat. He's got a moustache. Is that Luke Evans? Yeah, he's got a moustache. I, I was talking to him today. He's got an album out. Great. The album isn't in the film. He's also singing on the Strictly Come Dancing show. I think he's great. But the problem is that when you give somebody a phone book of a script to read and go, say that line and keep a straight face and don't worry, we're going to put the dogfights in afterwards. It's, you know, it's... I'm not kidding when I say this. It genuinely made Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor look like somebody had sat down and said, hmm, how can we make this a thoughtful... In fact, funnily enough, the poster even looks like the poster for Pearl Harbor. And as I was watching it, and I, believe me, Pearl Harbor is a terrible film. It is. And it's, I will, it's a shocker. Yeah, and I will go to my grave having tried to be kind about Pearl Harbor. Because I was one of the people who, when Pearl Harbor came out, I said, it's not that bad. 
I don't know why. I don't know. It was some, and is it? Some, Pearl Harbor? Yes. Terrible. Just checking. Absolutely terrible. I think, you know, with the exception of that one sequence that follows the, you know, the bomb out of the plane, it, yes, it's terrible. But this, I, I thought, you know, I, I should go back and reassess Pearl Harbor because in comparison, this is just like in a whole different league. Did Roland, did Roland Emmerich do The Day After Tomorrow or The Day Before? The, the, most, the most important thing is that he blew up the White House in Independence Day. And so, you know, so, so, so essentially bombast... Uh, is, is, he's Mr. Is, Bombastic. He's, he's Mr. Bombastic, but he's not very fantastic. <laughs> Although Jason Isaac speaks very highly of him, so there we go. Um, Joe Brody and Blackheath, we were talking earlier about people in cinemas taking photographs of the certificate. When the certificate yes. comes up at the beginning of the movie, uh, and apparently it's an Instagram thing. Yeah. Joe says, hi, listening live, signal permitting, as my tiny eyewitter dot moves around London, earning you vast sums of cash. Which is true. So thank you very much. I've seen and joined in with, I have seen and joined in with, with brief title photography at open air cinema screenings, but would tut at anyone doing this in a cinema. An open air screening means on, what, what's his name? Yeah. Showing the title screen or BBFC certificate screen plus a visible audience is quite photogenic. Oh, I see. But that's Instagrammable. Yeah, because you're, you're saying, look, I'm here at an outdoor screening of this thing. Or otherwise pictorially shareable it's an there's i am here yeah but also we might tag the director or others involved and thank them for the enjoyment we're about to have yeah it's a nice community thing though should never be at the expense of other people's dark adaptation which is usually less of a problem outside anyway so joe thank you very much uh so so one rule outside that it's okay to take a photograph of the certificate because it's Instagrammable. I'm not sure. Really? Outdoor screenings are kind of different. Yes. They I are kind of different. Because you can because drive you, in yeah. and drive out. Yeah, again. and people picnic and all that sort of stuff. It's a different It's a different thing. I mean, those Somerset House screenings or, you know, the screening when they show The Dark Knight um, up by the manor that is, the, the house that actually is Wayne Manor or Quadrophenia on the beach. In, so it's in, like the sing-along screening. It, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Different set of rules apply. But, okay, yeah. but just to be absolutely clear, in an ordinary cinema, in an ordinary sc- screen, ordinary context, yeah. put your camera away. Put your away. camera, yeah, turn your phone no off. No one wants a photograph of the certificate. Yeah. And if you do, it'll be on the BBFC website. Yeah, you can photograph that yeah. in the privacy of your own home. Exactly. Are we sounding a bit like Martin Scorsese? <laughs> That's just, right, yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> Not even playing that. Okay. Um, 420. This is Five Live. What else have we got then? Loose, which is ba- L-U-C-E, which is based on the stage play by J.C. Lee, who also wrote the screenplay. And it's, I thought this was very interesting. I knew nothing about this at all in advance. Kind of uh, socio-psychological thriller with uh, Naomi Watts and Tim Roth are this liberal American couple whose son, Luce, was adopted from war-torn Eritrea, where he had a you know a really traumatic childhood, child soldiery. He's overcome those traumas to become what is now being held up as a model student. He is skilled at sports. He is skilled at his studies. He is constantly held up as an example to fellow pupils of, you know, of what a, what a brilliant achievement his life is. Then he writes an essay which raises alarm bells with his teacher, Mrs. Wilson, played by Octavia Spencer, who I think is just great. I think she's great in pretty much everything, which is particularly great here. And she gets in touch with his parents to say, look, I'm slightly worried about Luce. I think that maybe he's 
having ideas that are not entirely healthy. And also, I found some fireworks in his locker. And they say, well, that's not a big deal. Go, yes, but they are illegal fireworks and they are dangerous fireworks. And what happens is questions start to be raised about whether she is somehow militating against him or what his true character is. And during the court, so the, the conundrum that is raised is what is his true character and why is she bothered by him? Coach Reeves offered me captain. Whoa. Wow. Oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's dope. Says I'll be a good example for certain teammates. But between track and debate prep plus all the extra shit Wilson has is doing. Well, how do you mean? Nothing. You really don't like her, do you? It's complicated. Try me. Okay. You remember Stephanie Kim, right? Mm. Sort of. Not a clue. Um, she came over one time less. Okay. Go on. Anyway, there were these rumors going around about her after this party a few weeks ago. What kind of rumors? Oh, people were drinking and no one really knows what happened, but um, Stephanie got kind of messed up. Then something happened with some guys. Then Wilson got involved and no one really could prove anything, but she kept using Stephanie as like an example, turning her into a victim. So... You can hear from that, it's it has a sort of a talky quality to it, which I think is, it is fairly obvious that it is a stage play. And I'm willing to forgive it that because I think that there is enough about it that is cinematic and makes it more than just a stage play adaptation to put up with the fact that I, you know, I know obviously it has uh, stage roots. For one thing, uh, Kevin Harrison Jr., who is the, the lead, is really, really terrific. I mean, he's really, really good at getting that that ambiguity of character that you you kind of you're introduced to this character and you think you know him but he's got this uh this very kind of hail fellow well-met uh manner he smiles at everybody slightly too much maybe slightly ingratiating but is there something that he's hiding or is it simply that his teacher is you know he's feeling some kind of uh projection that she is projecting her own anxieties and her own fears onto him all of that incident is amplified by the fact that jeff barrow and ben salisbury score does a brilliant job of that kind of unsettling unresolved feeling uh, in the background then uh, as the parents we have Naomi Watson Tim Roth who of course in the past played parents in the Michael Haneke's American remake of Funny Games although weirdly enough the film that this started to put me in mind of totally very different in terms of something of the subject matter is the previous Haneke Benny's video which is has got that kind of European bourgeois satire feel about what you know? What the European bourgeois satire feel? What is that? Okay, so um, well, in the case of it's it's about what it's about what a bourgeois family will do to preserve the illusion of everything being fine underneath which there is a whole bunch of stuff that clearly isn't fine, which is a sort of strong theme of some, Europe, some European strands yeah. of cinema, and you can see it in Chabrol. And, but it kind of it's finding its way into this because what it's about is about they have an absolute idea of who their son is. This teacher has an idea of who their son is. The friends who know him have different... And what we see is a kind of kaleidoscopic version of who this character actually may be. And at the centre of it, you have this very, very well-played character played by um, Kevin Harrison Jr., who is managing to reflect back all those different points of view. And what the film then is doing is constantly wrong-footing what you expect the narrative to do in terms of its uh, racial politics, in terms of its class politics, in terms of its uh, its uh, age politics. So it's constantly tripping up. Now, I, 
I'm sounding so enthusiastic about it because if you put this next to um, The Good Liar and you go, okay, well, one of these films genuinely wrong-foots you. One of these films genuinely makes you question what it is that you think you know about a character. And another one goes, here's what the characters are, guess. Yeah, yeah, you were right the first time. And I think this is a much better example of how... I mean, there were times when I was reminded of... You remember Will Smith's performance in Six Degrees of Separation, which, again, is that very sort of charming... You know, enigmatic, charismatic, but is there something? Is there something behind it, or is it just? Is it a prejudicial thing, or is it that you just don't trust their manner? So, in the case of Loose, I thought it did a very, very good job of keeping me constantly guessing. I thought it was well played by the entire ensemble cast, particular standout in the lead, and a terrific soundtrack that kept that feeling of un- being unsettled all the way through. Tim Roth. Well, um, I remember interviewing Tim Roth, oh. and he was fantastic. And then the last time I remember talking about him at. At length, he was being set blatter. set blatter. So we've kind of moved yeah. on and forgiven him. Uh, for in that. that film, in which in which the character he's playing actually says, "Look, none of us are in this for the money." <laughs> I know. One of, one couldn't of the great make lines. this stuff up, and I'm sure he's uh, he's he's moved on. Yes, and regretted. Well, the rest of us certainly have. Yeah. Uh, Four twenty six. Something else before the news. Yeah, driven, inspired by stranger than fiction facts. Although uh, stranger than fiction events, although taking you know huge liberties with the truth as always. So uh, Jason Zakers. This is called Driven. Jason Zakers is Jim Hoffman, who is drug dealer and turned FBI informant, who finds himself living next door to. John DeLorean, okay, played by Lee Pace. Now, for people of a certain age, John DeLorean is, you know, a, a character about whom, you know, we know from the news stories. So he is this silver fox who's sort of very successful. He's left the company he's in. Now he's starting out his own thing, designing his own car, which, as we all know, is going to turn out to only be good as a time machine in Back to the Future. You made a time machine out of a, a DeLorean, DeLorean, which is which is up there with Shut Up and Deal as one of the most sort of quoted lines in modern movie history. So essentially, um, Hoffman kind of effectively falls in love with him. He, he wants to be his friend. He wants to share his lifestyle. He wants to be part of this success. But DeLorean himself is having big financial troubles, which, as we all know, would end badly. And one of the ways he decides to try and get out of the financial troubles is getting involved in the kind of shady deal that Hoffman is involved in. And so Hoffman actually joins the authorities in attempting to set him up. If I get this money, I'm going right back to... Well, right back to that sketch. I want that feeling back. And how it felt when you're driving down the street in a car you built yourself and you know your dad's watching you and you just swell up you know john it's not too late to back out of this thing right these guys i mean they um they're not good people and once they get their hooks in you it can really there are an awful lot of families in northern ireland who need this men and women not afraid to stand up and be counted and if they can do it i can as well the Northern Ireland mentioned because that was the factory that they were being made at. Um, there's a lovely bit of trivia about this on the Wikipedia page, which says the DeLorean DMC-12 automobile used in the film was provided by the Puerto Rico DeLorean Club, who has since expressed regret at having loaned the car to the production after seeing the completed film. Oh. Um, yes, it does play fast and loose with the truth. There are characters who are invented and things are sort of changed around and friendships rally. But, you know, it's a, it, it's a inspired by real-life events. And the fact of the matter is that the actual story of DeLorean, the person and the DeLorean car, 
is so strange and it is kind of part of modern mythology that it's quite hard to totally drop the ball with it because it is a completely sort of uh, strange story. This had something of the atmosphere of Paul Schrader's Autofocus, although I think Autofocus is an infinitely superior film. Um, I think Autofocus is a really, really underrated movie and I think it's great, but it has that kind of, that same sense of this really strange mix of celebrity and corruption and a relationship which is which is kind of becoming toxic. I think that um, Sudeikis is very good at playing this character who has more than a touch of the Rupert Pupkin about him. I mean, we've talked a lot about Rupert Pupkin in relation to Joker, but that thing about somebody who's all smiles and all you know inappropriate handshakes and hugs and and doesn't appear to understand social boundaries or social norms and is basically a complete creep but a creep who spends his whole life smiling and thinking that he can just bluff his way through everything there's some there's there's also a kind of a a nice uh there's a great performance by judy greer his sort of long-suffering wife who you do wonder often why she's still with him and there's a lovely scene in which she says look the thing is i love him um, and you think really because he, you know, the way he comes across on screen is really strange. So it's an it's an odd film. I don't think it'll have much cinematic impact whatsoever. I imagine that most people who see it will see it at home uh, when it's released on you know on DVD or Blu-ray. But I quite enjoyed it, even though it is spectacularly uh, wiggy. Again, there is an awful lot of people walking around dressed as famous people. There is an awful lot of uh, very very heavily dressed period detail. But I kind of enjoyed it. I kind of enjoyed it because I do think that that DeLorean story, it, like I said, you'd have to go quite a long way to mess it up completely, and this doesn't do that. What's it called again? It's called Driven. Let's just say one thing that we haven't referred to is the Aeronauts isn't in the charts this week because it only opened on Monday. So, so, it, so it'll, the, the chart thing will happen next week because technically it didn't. We, we reviewed it last week. Yes. But it opened on Monday of this week, which is why it isn't in this week's charts because it technically will come up in next week's charts, obviously with an extended week behind it. You following me? So it's open on Monday to give it a long weekend. To give it a long, yeah, the longest it's weekend possible. It's a six day weekend. But when we do. When, when it is in the charts next week in which I presume hopefully it will go to top three maybe the number one can we please play the Monty Python sketch which is which you were talking about yes yeah. the meteorology sketch which it, it, there are it's so close to some of the dialogue from the aeronauts it's genius was part of you singing up up and away <laughs> was you doing that what was the and I can't let Maggie go by Hunter yes Bus. exactly is it that yeah or, or, that was the Ma, can't let Maggie go is the that was the nimble nimble uh, nimble nimble there was two it was nimble and slimsier <laughs> I don't know was that bread that makes you thin yeah but it, it was just small bread it wasn't any different it was just small Eat bread. less that's right yeah. uh, TV movie of the week uh, so Alison Bracker Brighton Rock, for me, still brilliant, still terrifying, demonstrates that implied violence and malevolence are more potent than a thousand Tarantino films. Yeah. Ian Goldsworthy, They Shall Not Grow Old. I know probably been, it's been chosen before, but if ever there was a film that should be chosen every single year at this time, it's this one. The moment the footage switches from jerky black and white to vivid colour made me gasp in a way no other film ever has. Jennifer says uh, it has to be Beauty and the Beast for me, my favourite Disney movie. Mark will pick They Shall Not Grow Old or God's Own Country, probably the former. It's a good week. Nick Reed, all killer no filler this week. I'd go for God's Own Country because it's bold, true and ruggedly beautiful and more people should see it. It caused quite a stir at our rural Yorkshire film club where some people were expecting a gentle scenic documentary. 
Intelligent Female Nonsense, which is a Twitter handle, in case you're wondering. God's Own Country is joyous, romantic, beautiful and clever, but 14-year-old me suggests Jane Eyre because Orson Welles as Mr Rochester is a smouldering hunk of manhood and everyone should see that. It a also... smouldering hunk of manhood? Apparently That's so. a great phrase. It also has great cinematography and a super booming Bernard Herrmann score. And Jen, on our Facebook page for me, it's a tie between Beauty and the Beast. I'm pretty sure Belle shaped eight-year-old me into the person I am today. And God's Own Country, which is a moving and beautifully acted film with a great turn from Gemma Jones as the Nan. Mark will go for They Shall Not Grow Old, given it's the run-up to Remembrance Day and the technical skill involved. What is our TV movie of the week? It's a double bill, actually. I am going to go for They Shall Not Grow Old because I agree that, you know, this time of year particularly, it's great to see that film again. But I also want to go for Brighton Rock because not only is it brilliant, but that first email you read out about implied violence is absolutely right. And you will never listen to a stuck record. It's got one of the it's got one of the best movie endings evs it is really astonishing and it's still to this day is it's breathtaking just how dark it is uh yes implied violence and malevolence yeah and it it's yeah it's absolutely brilliant maleficent and maleficent <laughs> tv movie of the week so bad it's bad this week's choice is are we going ma- to disclude the word maleficent maleficent include the word ma- no we're going to disclude the word I was referring yes, back to excluding. What a word that is! Short-term memory loss is the thing that's short-term, medium-term, and long-term. The other one. Yeah. Momentum from 2015, Vacation from 2015, Martyrs from 2015, and Rise of the Foot Soldier Part Two from 2015. Rachel Johnson says, "I've seen none of these." Was 2015 a particularly <laughs> bad year? Bad year. <laughs> James Beckingham. The one I'll make a conscious effort to avoid is Vacation for the cinematic crime of making a Chevy Chase film. Most of his films are awful, only held together by his comic timing and charm. The arrogance of the filmmakers to think they can replicate this. Karen Menzies, hands down Vacation, toe-curling and cringeworthy. I shudder just thinking about it. And Chris Evans, but neither of those. Momentum has been sat on my generic... Well, it could be, I suppose. Been sat on my generic hard disk TV recorder for about a year. I put it on this Sunday. I lasted five minutes, then it was deleted. The bizarre Power Ranger robbers were almost enough. <laughs> but once the dialogue started, I had an immediate reaction and not a good one. Very, very rarely will I turn a film off. But I wasn't going to waste my Sunday afternoon with this drivel, which takes us back to our early conversation about how long should you give a film before you walk out. Yeah. If it's momentum, five minutes is the answer. Uh, or you can save yourself five minutes and delete it already. So what is our TV movie of the week so bad it's bad? Well, I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't been bitter. I am going to go for Rise of the Foot Soldier Part 2. Now, I believe that there is a new Rise of the Foot Soldier movie out. Is it part 3? No, uh, we're further on down than that, aren't we? How we? The Spanish heist, and I'm going to try and catch up with that this week. Okay. I might not try hard. Where, as you know, that has a different significance. <laughs> I know exactly what that means. Uh, when can I avoid Foot you Soldier You can avoid part Rise two. of the Foot Soldier Part 2, Thursday on Five Spike. Um, I didn't ask you when I can see uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. They Shall Not Grow Old is at 10 past 10 at night on Sunday on BBC Two. And, and Brighton Brand- Rock is 25 past 7 in the evening on Saturday on Talking Pictures TV, which I have to say is everybody's favourite channel. It's four, You can quote them. 4.43, uh, we've got some new stuff still to come. Okay, for example. So Dog Called Money, which is a documentary of PJ Harvey recording an album after travelling to Afghanistan, Syria, Washington with Seamus Murphy, who's a photographer, while she's on a trip. 
She meets people, she listens to their stories, their music, she makes notes which form the basis of her songs and she's filmed uh, with you know, documentary cameras as she goes. The songs are then recorded in, I think it's a basement of Somerset House, within Somerset House, in a studio which has two-way mirrors. So when you're in the studio, you just see the mirrored images. When you're outside, you can look in. So it's essentially, it's a mixture of journalism, you know, travelogue, um, recording, songwriting and art installation because then recording the album whilst being watched by an audience is a sort of art installation thing. It sounds more interesting than I think it actually is. And I say that as I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a great PJ Harvey fan and I wanted this to be better than it was. I mean, the thing is, as a one of the problems is there is a real disjunct between the on the ground research and the and the recording stuff and it does it does run the risk i think of looking like art tourism and this is something that pj harvey is aware of in fact there is one moment in which he specifically says you know here i am observing this hardship whilst wearing you know very expensive footwear um there is something odd about the way in which the scenes are intercut i mean from a purely musical point of view i have to say that i was very taken by watching the recording of the album, watching the use of the instruments, which are often very, very interesting instruments. And I, you know, I would have happily just watched that stuff. The documentary is trying to do something much more than that, and I don't honestly think that it achieves it. OK, well, it's a quarter to five. It's time to do The Irishman, I think. Yeah. Now, you've seen The Irishman as well, haven't you? I have seen The Irishman. OK, so The Irishman um, is in cinemas for a couple of weeks, and then it comes to Netflix on, I think it's the 27th. And it's the latest by... Uh, Martin Scorsese, who we were speaking about earlier in the show because Chadwick Boseman was responding to Martin Scorsese's comments about superhero movies, Marvel movies. And uh, this uh, reunites Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. It is a, an epic tale, an absolutely epic tale spanning, I think it's six decades, starting from the trenches of World War II then going right up to 2000. And uh, it's the story of Frank, the Irishman Sheeran, who uh, we begin with him in his 80s, reminiscing firstly an internal monologue that then becomes an external monologue. He starts to tell his own story in a kind of confessional way. And we then go back to the experiences of the war, which, uh, in which after which he says, whatever happens, happens, because things happen in the war that kind of seem to put everything into a sort of slightly different perspective. He then comes back and he tries to make his way in the world. He very quickly falls in with uh, Joe Pesci, who is playing this kind of uh, crime boss figure, who puts him in touch with uh, Jimmy Hoffa, the legendary Teamsters, a uh, union person who famously disappeared, and uh, is played in the movie by Al Pacino. Here's a clip. Hello. Hi, my friend. How are you? Listen, I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm going to put him on the phone and let you talk to him, okay? Right. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I, I do. I do, and I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I understand you're a brother of mine. Yes, sir. Local 107 since 1947. Yeah. You know, uh, our friend speaks very highly of you. Well, thank you. He's not an easy man to please. Well, I do my best. So, you know, that kind of gives you... It was funny because you and I were smiling at each other just... Well, it's just hearing, the, hearing, them, hearing uh, their voices, doing the talk. Incidentally, 
as a, uh, oh, De Niro probably, as an old man, by the way. Yeah, as a yes, that's right. Because we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, next week on the show. If this is, we should play. There's a there's a brilliant song by Amy Mann called Jimmy Hoffa Jokes, which is which is fantastic. One of the themes of the film is this question about whether people still remember who Jimmy Hoffa is. And because obviously, Jim, there's this thing in the 50s, he was as big as Elvis. In the 60s, he was the Beatles. And the story, and I don't want, because obviously, people, you know, I want people to discover the story themselves, but the stories of these characters mm-hmm. intertwine in ways which are, you know, uh, open to controversy and interpretation, blah, 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 blah. So the, the, the key things to say, firstly, are the film has been made possible by the, in inverted commas, miracle of digital de-aging, which we have seen done before in movies. I mean, most recently we saw the digital de-aging of uh, Gemini Man, although that process was a strange process they were doing. This is the, the process which was developed by ILM. And I have to say, I think it worked pretty well. There is a scene early on in which we go from uh, De Niro as an older to a younger man. It happens in situ. We actually sort of see the face change. And I confess that I pretty quickly forgot about it. Um, for me, that's a kind of key thing. If you don't notice the visual effects, then it means they're working. The one thing that you do notice is that as the age of the faces change, the ages of the bodies don't change so much. I know that they did uh, you know, um, physical work, motion work in order to make the characters move differently. I do understand that. But there are definitely times in the film in which there is a disparity between how old a character is and how old the character's body is moving. That is true. Yeah, that is true. That said, if that's the problem that you're dealing with, with this level of involvement of VFX, that's pretty good going. Because we're talking about a three-and-a-half-hour movie in which they are, which characters are being played at a number of different ages. I mean, obviously, later on, using sort of more conventional technology to some extent. But if the biggest complaint is, at times, their heads and their bodies don't seem to be entirely in the same time frame, then I think that's not bad going. That sounds pretty major. No, because it's, it's their heads and their bodies are in the wrong time frame. No, I, I said that's the worst, and that, that that isn't true all the time. There is one scene, the scene outside the grocery store, that I think it is particularly true. But for most of it, to come back to what I said originally, it didn't. I I forgot about it. I forgot about it so much that I noticed that I wasn't making any notes about it. I'd said to myself, I must make notes about this, and then I hadn't done it because I thought it was gen- generally convincing. Did you find it convincing? I found it incredibly annoying. Incredibly annoying. Okay, okay. But, but here's the thing, and I don't want to interrupt your, no, no, it's fun. Interrupt your flow. I saw it with Child One, who spends a lot of time, as people of his age do, playing video games. Yeah. And he said it just reminded him all the time of the cutscenes when, you, when you're playing a okay. video game and it gets to the end of a particular sequence and then it goes into like yeah. a, a movie sequence. Yeah. And he, it, was, it was like that. Instead of, he said, old man with a CGI face. That, okay. And that's what it felt like. And then once he'd said that, I was thinking... I think that's I think that's right, and then it was made worse. I know it's got nothing to do with this film, by the story about James Dean being in a movie. Yeah, yeah, but that's thinking. This is a toy that they've got, and I and I and I would rather that they stick with the traditional ways of aging rather than playing too much with this tape. Okay, well, I feel differently, and and I'm surprised that I do. I actually thought that the VF that the the de aging, the digital de aging, this was done very well. I found it unobtrusive. I think that in the end, it is just another form of makeup in the same way that motion capture, performance capture, pardon me, um, is another way of, of dressing. Incidentally, on the subject of dressing, uh, you know, Sandy Powell, uh, brilliant costuming, tells you exactly where you are in the narrative at any one point because the time frames are shuffled around all the time, but you know exactly 
exactly where you are at any one time because it's a story within a story within a story. We have the 80-year-old narration, we have the story of the of the road trip in the 1970s, then we have the flashback. So it's flashbacks within flashbacks and there was never a point in the film that I thought I don't know where I am. And I think you and I feel differently about the about the digital de-aging. I also thought that it was um there was a real pleasure in seeing Scorsese you know, doing this kind of stuff, Goodfellas Casino, doing the sort of stuff that he that he became known for and celebrated for. And I felt that the film um the film was enjoying itself without without doing the thing that the good light did, which was just looking like the performers are having a good time and no nobody else is. Um I think that Pacino's performance is very Pacino. It's like, again, I'm sure that between takes Martin Scorsese's primary uh, direction would have been could you just dial it down a little bit just dial it down just a little bit I think there is a brilliant performance by Stephen Graham playing a role that in the past would have been played by Joe Pesci I think there's a great performance by Joe Pesci playing a role that is much more sort of stand back quiet I mean actually owes something to Brando's Don in The Godfather you know the quietly spoken word which is actually more and and there is there are a couple of moments in which they do that thing about it's not what's said it's what's not said so, for example, the scene, the salad scene later on in which it's not what's said, it's it's not what's said, it's what isn't said, I think works really well. Um, I loved the Robbie Robertson theme, which I thought had that kind of brilliant feeling of almost like uh, David Lynch's Fire Walk With Me, that kind of strange, timeless, weird, echoey, dreamy, nightmarish feel to it. Um, there's been some discussion about Anna Paquin's character having, you know, very few light. And I know this is a discussion that's been had before in relation to uh, the Quentin Tarantino uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Margot Robbie. One thing I would say about it is this. I do think it's true that um, this is a very Boise film. I mean, the, the characterizations in it who are leading are all the way through. It is a very, very male-dominated film. That said... I actually thought that Anna Paquin was a very strong presence in the film because the point about her character, the point about what she's doing is the not talking is the point because it's the thing about she, you know, it's her silence is the thing that cuts him to the core. And the only reason I bring this up is, particularly as I've often talked about show don't tell filmmaking, that it is absolutely true that there is a sort of vague comparison between how many lines and how important the character is, although we can get down to the absurdity of the towering inferno in which Paul Newman and Steve McQueen have to have the same number of lines. But we also have to be careful because it is possible for a character with no lines to 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 be a really important presence. And I thought that Anna Paquin, this is not to do with Martin Scorsese or the script, this is to do with her. I thought her screen presence was powerful and I thought her silence was powerful. That is not to say that there isn't a discussion to be had about who's telling these stories and whether or not Cinemon needs to change, which I think it does. But I think in this particular case, it's too simple to just say Anna Paquin's got six and a half lines and therefore is sidelined. I think she's more important than that. The other thing I'd say is at three and a half hours long... I think it will find its natural home on Netflix just because three and a half hours is a long time for mm -hmm. a cinema film. No question about it. And I thought it all worked until the last act, which I did feel flagged. But I felt that if you'd watched it at home on television, that last act wouldn't have felt like that. But I thought it was I thought it, it, it got a, it got to close to the three hour mark 
before it felt like it had overstayed its welcome. I'd say 2.45, but there you go. Okay, but we're, so in, a, I, we're in a similar ballpark. I, re- can I, say, I really, really enjoyed it. So and I, I agree with you about, about seeing these guys back together. Yeah. Just thought it was too long, and sure. I found the CGI... Uh, Distracting, yeah, fine, fine. Craig and Nathan Hall. My son, uh, Nathan, and I attended the premiere showing of The Irishman on the 13th at the excellent Everyman Cine- Cinema in Liverpool. It was with a palpable sense of expectancy as Scorsese had finally got the old band back together. <laughs> and from the start, it was obvious that the production design team had put a huge amount of the $159 million Netflix budget to good use as each passing decade is lovingly recreated in exacting detail. However, what becomes apparent as the film serenely glides through the decades... It's not the de-aging process, which isn't intrusive, though it's obvious from sun scenes that you can't de-age the way an older man moves physically. Which is what we said, yeah. The main issue is the strength of the story in relation to the 209-minute running time. We appreciated it had been produced for a home streaming audience who'll mostly watch the three hours and 29 minutes in comfortable sofa instalments, yeah. which is what you're saying. Yeah. However, in a single cinema setting, this runtime eventually made for a sense of story repetition, especially towards the end when you don't really care what happens to De Niro's irredeemably unlikable Frank Sheeran. Also, you have to question why Scorsese bothered to cast an actor of Anna Paquin's standing for her muted contribution, a fate shared with all the female characters, which we felt led to an unbalanced narrative and dynamic. This view, I'm sure, places in a minority, but even with a few weeks' hindsight, we'd still recommend members of the church spend their time re-watching Goodfellas and Casino. I mean, the, the, uh, as I said, the, I think there's no question that it is absolutely a male-dominated narrative. No question about it at all. Uh, the only thing I'm flagging up is we just need to be careful of not simply saying that fewer lines means less significance. Would you like more on the Irishman with correspondence or do you want to do your... Let me do meeting, meeting Gorbachev. Do you mind? It's entirely your call. OK, yeah. so this is um, Herz- the professor. Werner Herzog interviewing uh, Gorbachev, looking back at his life, his legacy, his rise from his rural background, his extraordinary intelligence, his belief in Glasnost and Perestroika, and perhaps most importantly, his attempts to lessen, if not rid, the world of nuclear weapons. Gorbachev then offered to meet Reagan anywhere, even Hiroshima, to agree to ban nuclear testing, despite the fact that leaders like Margaret Thatcher were strongly opposed. I told him that I didn't think he would disinvent nuclear weapons, that nuclear weapons had been the best deterrent to war the world had ever known, and that if you took them right down, then you were at risk of a conventional and chemical war, and if ever you put enhanced that risk, then the moment that war started, it would be more terrible, and it would be won by the first person to get nuclear weapons. Two absolutely uh, immediately identifiable voices, just then the voice of Margaret Thatcher. And before it, the voice of Werner Herzog, who... Doing an impression of you. And the strange thing about it is, I mean, I've met Herzog and, you know, done stuff with Herzog over many years. That's the most Herzog-y Herzog has ever sounded, to the point that I think it's almost in danger of tipping over into into self-parody. I mean, we know he has parodied himself and he's, you know, he is aware of his, the cultural import of his voice and how people now do it. But it's almost like, okay, Werner, just... Dial it down a bit. Dial it down just a little bit. Um, there's a moment in the documentary in which Herzog says to Gorbachev, I love you. He says, I love you, because he's talking about German reunification and what it means to I mean, It's a very, very personal film. And... Uh, there are good and bad things about that. I think it's really interesting to see the story, to remember what he achieved, what he tried to achieve, what happened to him for achieving or not achieving those things that he set out to do. Um, so it's a kind of primer. But it is, weirdly enough, if anything, more about Herzog's own 
uh, personal investment in the story, which I think makes it perhaps not a great documentary. I think it's a lesser Herzog documentary, but it's interesting up to a point, and there are certain moments in it that that have that Herzog magic. But I think overall, it's it's an incidental Herzog project. This has been a something else production for BBC Radio Five Live. Mark, what is your film of the week? I think The Irishman. And next week, Amelia Clark will be talking Last Christmas. Next, it's Drive with Tony Livesey. Well, that was the show, and I think Mark was, as ever, impeccable and on top form, sparkling, tripping nimbly over all the many uh, fine facets of the show. You know, I wonder... Polishing it as he went, leaving a beautiful smell behind him, cleaning and dusting and doing the laundry. I came down last night, having had a bath and a shave, and the good lady professor, her indoors, said, you smell lovely. She said, well, that sounds and surprising. I, I think it was. And I said, oh, yes, that's the, that's the aftershave that you bought me. So it wasn't, yes. it, it wasn't that I smelt lovely. It was something that she had selected. So she was praising herself. In a way. In a, very, in a very real way. But then again, I did smell lovely. I smelled of bay rum. I love bay rum. What is that? Bay rum. It sounds like an ale of some kind. Not an ale. It's something where you use it for hair tonic. My grandfather used to use it, and I love bay rum. I think it's fabulous. When my when my grandfather, you see this ring here that I'm wearing here, yeah, this yeah. is my grandfather's ring. This is my father's father's ring. And when I was a little kid, my he used to he he wore it on his pinky on his little finger, pinky finger as they call it in America, and uh, he used to wear bay rum in his. He was an incredibly handsome man. He looked like Errol Flynn. He had this kind of you know Spitfire pilot moustache and slick back hair. And he put bay rum in his hair that was, and I, I used to think he was like kind of this godlike creature. And I would go into the bathroom when he was getting ready, and he would put bay rum on his hands to put it into his hair. And then he'd do that. He put it on. He put a little bit of him, and then he would let me wear this ring on my thumb because obviously when I was a kid, my thumb was the size of his little finger. So after he died, it left me this ring. So that's why I've, I've always worn this ever since. And the smell of bay rum. Is the thing that makes me feel, you know, most happy and content. So there we go. Little trip down memory lane. Very good. <laughs> now, <laughs> DVD of the week. We've got to do this in like um, two minutes because I need to go to the loo. So I'm going to zip through this. <laughs> Thanks for that. Okay. Okay. You go. There you go. DVD of the week music. I like that very much. Very quickly, you need to go to the loo. Watch DVD of the week there, Mark. Oh, no. Okay. I'll do a little bit. Simon. Hey, Mark. Can you hear that? Yeah, amazing control. <laughs> Ooh, Spider-Man Far From Home is out on Monday. Monday isn't Spider-Man's favourite day of the week. Go on. That's today. Fly day. Oh. Sadly, November is not his favourite month either. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. No, I don't know. Webuary. No. Rubbish. I mean, really pathetic. So, uh, also on the list. That, even, even for you, that's poor. Is a film which you described as preposterously terrible. Superman and the Hood in a remake of the last scene of Silence of the Lambs, but not as good as that sounds. In the days when there was such a thing as straight-to-video movie, this would have been a straight-to-video movie. That's right, it's Night Hunter. Night Hunter. Starring Sir Ben Kingsley. Sir! Actor Cooper. Sir! Who takes the pronunciation of individual words and in... <laughs> Sentence slaps senseless. It actually improves the script somewhat. So let's see what releases the crew are thinking are worth keeping. Neil Swift. Leon is wonderful, a seminal film that encouraged me to find a love for European cinema. Andy King, the first time I watched Spider-Man, I came out thinking it was merely an okay next instalment. But I'm watching it was a few more times and also seeing some film breakdown 
videos. It actually is a well-made film with some nicely written touches. Ian Lambert, Spider-Man for me, as the extra scenes added to Leon utterly ruin it. Uh, Rock Trumpet on Twitter. I want to be called Rock Trumpet. (laughs) I stopped eating after Leon. Leon is DVD of the week. Yeah, uh, Mozer on Twitter Leon wonderful cast great originality to the story superb soundtrack beautifully shot true classic Peter James Vine it's Leon man it's Leon Luc Besson's best film uh, Portman is amazing Jean Renan is amazing and Jean Old- who? Jean Renan Jean and Oldman amazing everyone is amazing what is our DVD of the week and I'm going now so you can close down the show ok well I am going to go for Spider-Man Far From Home because I really did enjoy it and it's uh, I think particularly at the moment it's necessary to have a film that one really does enjoy and now Simon has left the room so I'm literally left here on my own and I'm all, all immediately starting to feel worried so there we are just feel for a bit ok um, uh, yeah so I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the basis joke, okay? Because that will that's what I usually do if somebody breaks a string on stage. So there's an orchestra rehearsing, and they go off to lunch, and they come back, and there's a terrible noise coming from the orchestra pit, and they find the double bassist is a big guy beating up the triangle player, and they pull him off the triangle player, and they say, "What are you doing?" And he says, "Well, while we we're at lunch, he put one of my strings out of tune." And they say, "That's no reason to beat him up." And the double bassist says, "Yes, but he won't tell me which one." BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Here's a question. A man escapes from one of the world's most brutal dictatorships. He's risked everything to do it. But once he's free, he digs a hole and he tunnels straight back in again. Why? I'm Helena Merriman, and over the past six months, I've been investigating an extraordinary escape story for BBC Radio 4. A story involving a tunnel a spy and an American TV network. To subscribe, search for Intrigue Tunnel 29 on BBC Sounds 